Hey, everybody. Welcome to Haggerty's Never Stop Driving podcast. And this is the pod for those who love cars and driving and are committed to keeping those precious things alive. Now, we'll bring you the latest from the car world and Haggerty Media and interviews with the car world's most compelling people. I'm your host, Larry Webster. I'm the editor-in-chief of Haggerty Media. And my co-host today is the guy who loves his creaky classics, yet he owns an EV. He really digs into researching newspapers.com for nuggets to color his stories. And, and he had a wonderfully real and cathartic tantrum after he put his Mazda Miata race car into the kitty litter at Laguna Seca. After all, I'm talking about Haggerty Media's editor at large, Aaron Robinson. Hi, Aaron. How are you? You're the only one who remembers any of this. That was stuff. the best. That, that is one of my favorite <laughs> memories of all time. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta dig up that video. It's around somewhere. God, if I you didn't gotta actually, dig up that video. Accidentally erase it over it. <laughs> God, I hope you didn't. That would be like the best gift you could ever give me. Is that video? I mean, who doesn't fucking lose their shit when they go off the track in a <laughs> Miata race? I mean, come on. Oh, I know, but that's what I liked about it. I loved your, uh, your just your emotion, your raw emotion came out and. I always tell people that these club races we do are meaningless, but all our emotions we feel are so real. And where do you feel these huge emotions, good and bad, but you really have no consequences other than racing? You don't, right? Larry, when I started racing, you said the wisest thing I ever heard about racing, which is that oh. you will experience the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows. And that was exactly a perfect it's description true. of what racing is. <laughs> so okay well good i'm glad I, I had my eyes wide open back then because that must have been when we both just started and um yeah that's that's what i continue to love about it because at the end you don't it, it's no real consequence like you're flying now you screw up there oh boy but car racing not really so much especially miatas yeah. Yeah. I mean, somebody once asked me to compare flying and racing and I said, racing is the ultimate narcissistic thing you can do. It's all about you. And, you know, it's really self-focused, <laughs> you know, I mean, you're the only one really having the fun. Uh, whereas flying is a group thing. We can share it with others and do it with other people. And the wife enjoys it. She never, she never liked going to the races. So, and I, I certainly don't blame her. So, um, so yeah, that's that's how I would compare it. And and as far as cost, uh, it's probably a wash, depending on what you like to race. So it probably um, is a wash, depending on the car you're going to choose. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, I get it, but the pilots. There's only one pilot in a plane, and everybody else is riding along. So I'm not sure I agree with you on that one. At least you know. <laughs> I guess we get the well. Often forever, there's but... more than one pilot, and then the good pilot kind of lets the person in the right seat take over. Hey, you want to fly it? Because the flying part of flying is actually the easiest part of the whole thing. I mean, just steering the plane is, you can learn that in 10 minutes. It's all the other crap you have to know, um, including landing. But, um, you know, that said, <clears throat> it's fun. It's a great toy. We've had a good time with it. Well, I know you, you challenged me to see how many of those adjectives I could introduce you with, and it will never end, Aaron. I will always, the material is endless. You will see. You will see. Well, there's an old joke. How can you tell the pilot in the room? How? He'll tell you. <laughs> so. <laughs> or she'll tell okay. you. <laughs> well, it's so. the first week of January 2024. It's being even new year. I hope you're feeling as optimistic as I am because, um, over the break, right on Christmas Day, opening day, I went and saw the movie that's 
it's got to be the most hot, hot, highly anticipated automotive media, Ferrari. And I think you saw it too, did you? Yes, I have seen yeah. it. Okay. Uh, it was 1245 Christmas. We had opened up some gifts here because I have kids. And then I dragged them all to the movie theater. And uh, we sat and we watched it. And I have to say, um, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but halfway in, I checked my watch and said, how much longer is this going to go? <laughs> That's when you realize it's not actually a racing movie. <laughs> it's not a movie for me. I was like, oh, no. You know, I thought. Or indeed a car movie, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so, uh, all right, you, you go first. What's your first impression when you walked out? What, what were you going to tell somebody who walked up to you and said, Aaron, did you like it? What would you say? Well, actually, lots of people ask me, and and my answer is I enjoyed watching it. Um, mm-hmm. It's not really a car movie or a racing no. movie. It's really kind of a, a bedroom potboiler, marital um, uh, trouble movie. It's really yeah. the central question that the movie attempts to answer is what's going to happen with Piero Ferrari, uh, who's the illegitimate son of Ferrari, with his uh, mistress Lena Lardi, and and. The answer to that is he's going to be a billionaire. He'll be fine. You know, um, well, the movie so didn't answer I, that. We know, we know well, that, no, but no, the movie didn't know. answer it. But the to movie. me, it was kind of a hollow question. To me, the question that the movie should have asked was, why is he doing this? Because the, the, the movie focuses on the year 1957, which is a year after his son dies, um, yep. Dino Ferrari, his legitimate yep. son. And, um, and he's wrestling with that. And he's also, in this deep relationship with his mistress, which is causing all kinds of issues with his wife, who's played by Penelope Cruz, who in many ways steals the movie. And she did. Um, and it's really, and in meantime, drivers are dying all around him. And yeah. it, you know, it's just a terrible year. And the real central question to me of Enzo Ferrari is why does he think this is worth the cost? What is the thing oh, about what he's no, doing? No, I don't I disagree. How could, you can't answer that? It's like, why do we like cars? Who knows? Why do I like chocolate? You just do. Like, yeah, but that's the question the movie should be exploring. I mean, okay, it's, you know, his marital problems and his, you know, mistress and everything is, is an interesting side story. But if you're really talking about him, the man, what what drives this guy? Like, why is he doing this when, uh, when wh- it's obviously... Okay. You know, I mean, the Vatican said, and this is actually quoted in the movie, they said that Enzo Ferrari is a modern day Saturn. He's eating his own children. I mean, uh, you know, it, at the time, um, you know, I mean, as a result of the crash, he was brought up on murder charges. I mean, people were the protesting at yeah, the yeah. factory. Yeah. Um, so well, the question is, why does he do this? And uh, that's not a question that's at all answered in the film. I, well, OK. I mean, you and I, I'm, I'm, uh, I brought this along. This is the latest uh, Ferrari biography. Luca Del Monte, he was a former public relations guy for Ferrari. This thing is a monster. It's a phone book. It's almost a thousand pages. And so any movie about Enzo is going to have to focus somewhere. And that I understood walking in the door. You're going to get some condensed version of Enzo because the story is so big. Um, But I'm with you. I walked out. I was like, gosh, I wish there was more cars. I wish it was more about the company, just because you and I know there's there's so many interesting characters that were in his orbit in that time. And yes, right. I understand his personal life maelstrom, which which is if you think about maybe the question should have been, how did he do it? Because he had chaos in his personal life, a mistress, illegitimate son, 
wife he's fighting with who owns a portion of the company, his mother, right? And then on top of it, it's, you know, the the engineers and drivers that he relied on to build his company, they were as just as every bit as hothead and crazy as he was. So they're fighting and walking out the door every other year and coming back. And I mean, the drama, <laughs> Well, it's kind I, of amazing. I think it, it was a perfect candidate for one of those 10 episode miniseries. That, yeah, that yeah, we thought the same. Yeah. Great. I mean, un- unfortunately, they tried to cram it into, you know, a two hour movie. And yeah. it's, like I said, it's watchable. I enjoyed it. I, I'm glad I saw it. It's nowhere near as fun as Ford versus Ferrari, even though it's no. actually more accurate than Ford versus Ferrari. So, um, you know, I'll say if you're going to, to the theater for a good time, this is not the movie to watch. Uh, the NP- I was listening to the NPR reviewer, and he said, well, I knew nothing about the subject. And so I'm sitting there in the theater, and I had no idea this crash was coming. And he said, when the crash happened, I audibly gasped, you know, because oh, yeah. it's, it's quite graphically depicted. And it is. Um, and, you know, I, it, I'm, I honestly, I can't say whether it's better to know something about the subject before you go in or if it's rather better to not know anything, because certain things are not explained, like what the Mealy Melia is and why it's so important to Ferrari and why, you know, it's such an important race. It's yeah. never mentioned. It's like, oh, we got to yeah. go do the Mille Mille to save the company. I, well, okay, well, what's that? And so maybe it helps to know some stuff, but at the same time, you might actually enjoy it more if you don't know anything. I think that's accurate. I mean, I, I walked out and I looked at my wife. I said, yep, this was a movie made for film critics, right? It's about a guy's relationship with his mistress and his wife and the maelstrom and how he's working and blah, blah, blah. And that the the canvas just happened to be the most important thing in the world to us, which is cars and racing. So, of course, I'm going to be disappointed no matter what. And I'm glad they made it. Don't get me wrong. I think he's an enigmatic, really interesting figure. That piece you wrote that's on the Hegarty.com website, it was also in the Drivers Club magazine, this really short primer bio. And I think you put it really, really well. You said... um, Something about building an empire is not for the squeamish, right? I mean, he was a tough guy. Right. And, right. Um, you know, the I think what we're reacting to is since we know so much more, that is way more extraordinary than his personal life. You know, because he started Ferrari when he was 49 years old. Can you imagine? He's about the same age as us. Can you imagine starting yeah. a car company right now? Are you kidding? <laughs> no. Like, you know, in 47, he does. And then... Can't even the next, get my own cars running. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, the decade was like tumultuous to say the least. One year he's up, next year he's almost bankrupt. And right, which is the question that I wanted the movie to answer, which is what motivates this guy against all this hardship and this terrible loss that he, you know, continues. I have my own theories, but uh, all right, let's hear you it. Know, I, well, you know, I mean, having read Brock's book, which, by the way, I recommend everybody read. It's a, yeah. it's really fun book to read. Brock Yates wrote it right after Enzo died. And, you know, at the time, people were lionizing this great figure. And he really wanted to stick some pins into the guy's image. And the, the, the book is deliberately iconoclastic. Um, so I recommend... Wait, Aaron, can I book. just jump in real quick? I want to... Oh, I, I agree with you 100%. That's Brock Yates, the guy who wrote Cannonball Run. The title of the book is Enzo Ferrari, The Man, The Cars, The Races, The Machine. And he, yeah, he published it in 1991, um, a few years after Enzo died in 88. And the reason I know all this, I read it too 25 years ago, but I just listened to the audio version after the movie because I was like, I should go back and buy it. And I mean, his, I, his writing style 
translates really well to audio because, you know, Brock was not a, he's not like a literature writer, but he was a journeyman kind of journalist who had a breezy style that works really, really, he doesn't bog down in the details, even though the details are there. Is that, yeah. is that fair? Yeah, no, no question. And, yeah. um, and it, that makes it a fun read. It's one of my favorite yeah, birthday gifts to give to people. Cause it's, it's like, I know you're going to have a good time reading this book. The yeah, other yeah, book, yeah. the Luca Del Monte book is much more scholarly. There's yeah. places in where he kind of lets Enzo off. There's places where he's actually harder than Brock was on Enzo. He's yeah. got, he's privy to some information that Brock didn't have, whereas Brock actually interviewed a lot of these guys where they were still alive. So yeah. it's it's interesting to compare and contrast the two books together. It's a lot of reading, grant, I grant you, especially about Enzo Ferrari. But, but if you really want a good uh, character image of the man, uh, you know, both books really um, paint it quite well together. So my theory as to why he did what he did was because uh, he was uh, kind of an Italian nationalist. I mean, he believed that uh, in order to pull Italy out of the wreckage of World War II, which, and, and people don't realize how destroyed the country was yeah. and how poor everyone was. And, right. you know, I mean, Americans, when they had dinner in, you know, 1950, was like, oh, you know, you kids, you got to eat all your food because there's kids starving in Italy. And it was true. I mean, you know, mm. Italy was really brought to its knees. And Enzo felt that it was his job, as well as the job of all the other, you know, smart, enterprising, entrepreneurial people in Italy to raise the company, to raise the country up to its previous stature mm. in the world. And he felt that racing was the noblest, you know, cause ah. since we don't have, you know, war had proven to be a dead end, um, you know, that, that racing really was. And racing, you know, I mean, remember, he was racing the Nazis in the 30s. Uh, running out for Romeo's team, and yeah. it was very much a nationalistic effort. Everything was politicized, and you know, and he had this very 19th century view of the world, which you know, this kind of 19th century view of of manliness and 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 what really uh, was a noble cause. And and I, I, you know, he used to call his his favorite driver was Tazio Nuvolari, who took this old at the time 1935 these old Alphas they outdated and beat the Nazis with them. And, and, and the term in Italy that they used for the guys like him were Garibaldinos. You know, they were, they were true sons of Garibaldi, the great unifier of Italy in the 19th century. And, and Enzo spent his whole life looking for another Garibaldino, like, Te, you know, Tazio Nuvolari. And, and, and there was this, this great, yeah. I think, patriotic um, impulse by I hear Enzo you. to, you know, I mean, after all, this was the seat of Rome, you know, I mean. Can I offer a counter opinion? <laughs> sure of course i mean it's a good one and I, I get it i think he just loved it and that was his passion because i think it was just you know because you you know the story he went to fiat to work at the race team before 1920 and was rebuffed and uh that that threat of uh, the threat of revenge they a lot of people speak to like when he finally got fiat to invest in the company in the late 60s that was his ultimate revenge but I think he was really driven by just passion for racing and automobiles. And there was certainly nationalism involved, but this is just what he knew and he loved. And it was his sole, you know, desire because he had a good company building machine tools during World War II, right? He was copying the German machine tools and the lathes and that was doing really well. But as soon as that war was over, he's like, I know racing's going to pick up. I'm getting back into it. And then because he was so passionate about his cars winning, he wasn't tied to just hiring Italian drivers. You know, and a lot of times, especially in the 50s, he had non-Italian drivers, you know, even American, Phil Hill. So 
there's some meaning there, you know, that was really his passion. And he also had the, uh, you know, the nationalism there that was pretty big after world war two, but I still think this was just, it's kind of like us just love it. He's going to indulge in it 24 seven. Well, I, I would say if he loved it, it's, he had a very odd sort of love for it because he never went to the famously never went to the races. Never went to the races um, yeah. you know, he, the, the car building side of his business, the road car business, he mm-hmm. didn't care at all about. He, yeah. He took, you know, these, these rich dandies and posers would come, you know, scraping through his doorstep, throwing money at him for his cars. And he, he hated them and he took their money and yep. he sold them these cars with live axles and leaf springs and drum brakes, you know, okay, they were beautiful and they're very valuable now, but you know, and, and he took that money when he did what he thought was noble, which was going racing. Um, and I think I don't, you know, I mean, when, when Ford was negotiating with Ferrari to buy the company, the, the price of the car building business was ridiculously low. It was much less than what he ended up selling it to Fiat for. It was like $2 million for the entire operation because uh, he didn't care at all about it. You know, he only cared about the racing. And so I, you know, did he love it? Um, it's hard. I mean, I, I you know, no, I don't know the man, but I, you know, yeah, I mean, but I would say if, if I'm going to buttress your argument, uh, according to Brock's book, you know, he knew to hire the Scaglietti's, the Pininfarina's, the Touring's, the Superleggera's to make the bodies. And, there does not exist one sketch where Enzo was sketching out a car design. So, you know, whatever artistry. I mean, he washed out of engineering. Kind of was an engineer. Yeah. (laughs) Well, they called him Ingenieri because he'd been given an honorary doctorate from, from the Bologna technical school, but, but he had washed out of engineering school and this actually, people call him commendatory. His, his preferred, um, honorific, I guess you call it, what he wanted to be called was Ingenieri, even though he wasn't an engineer. So, um, yeah, but they, no, nobody really it. was back then. I think he felt a calling for it, which I think is different from loving it. Um, hmm. I think if he loved it, he would have been like Colin Chapman. He would have been at the races, running the team, hands-on. Um, you know, well, I, I, think, mean, uh, I think Colin Chapman loved it. I think he loved the whole life and the, and I think Bruce McLaren loved it. Um, uh, I don't know that Enzo loved it. I think he felt. Wait a minute. It was wait a minute. Wait a minute. Maybe there's two different. Maybe there's two different time periods. But you know, in all the biographies and all the autobiographies, he talks about, you know, in his teens and his brother seeing these race cars and falling for it like hideously, and then he single-mindedly not go, you know going to Alfa Romeo, going to Fiat, you know, and then running the team, and then you know what he endured before World War II. Alfa Romeo treated him like garbage. You know, sometimes he was selling cars. Sometimes he's running the race team. Then he's running his own Scuderia Ferrari. Then no, we're buying it back. I mean, he got rich during that period. And as you said, he had some glory, but, you know, he endured all that because I think he just genuinely loved the sport and the activity. And of course, he was a driver for a while. You're not driving back then unless you love it. Um, well, but it, he, he, he quit. He quit. Unlike most of he, his peers, he quit. He wasn't good. He died. Because he recognized that uh, he was probably going to get killed doing it. And his future was not behind the wheel. It was behind a desk wearing a tie. And I, you know, and he was destined to go to his grave as an 87-year-old man quietly and peacefully, um, you know, not die in some flaming wreck. And and I think he was smart enough to recognize that his calling wasn't behind the wheel. Um, and he was, you know, hey, listen, uh, Brock says that... Um, 
Enzo once described himself as an agitator of men. And yeah. I think that's exactly what he was. He, he was. was. You know, exactly. He was in the Mussolini mold. He agitated men to do things, you know, to do his bidding. And, and that really was his strength. I mean, he was brutal. You know, he'd have more drivers on staff than he had cars for them to drive. So it was a constant, you know, juggling match of who was going to drive what. And the story in Brock's book, the way the, uh, you know, the Melee Melee accident in 1947 that the movie depicted, you know, the movie sort of shifted things around. That was actually in the beginning of the season in May is when that race was run. And I think they did show really how popular it was because it was on everybody's TV. But, you know, we know back then it was one of the biggest races in the world, kind of like the Indy 500. Um, according to Brock's book, there was another driver on the stable that they put in a 250 GT, kind of more of a, not a full-blown race car for the Mille Mille event. And uh, Enzo went up to the Portago and said, yeah, he's going to beat you anyway, but I figured, you know, I'd give you as much chance as I could and just insulted him at that last stop. And well, that's, that's the way he turned the screws, you know, on yeah. his drivers. He would play these, you know, hor hor horrific mind games and, uh, and try and extract the best, you know, performance out of them. I mean, Portago was one of these, uh, you know, Portago was the son of a Spanish count yeah, and, noble. and yeah. a British heiress and, and, um, you know, kind of live, live the life of a playboy and, uh, and his co-driver, who's not really introduced in the movie, was a, a bobsledder or a loser. I can't remember. But he, you know, and he was just kind of one of Portago's hangers on. And, and you know, the other guy. He was a vet. Uh, he was a World War II vet. So he was sort of like just, you know, not going to go back into real life, just sort of traipsing around right. Europe. Yeah. Right. Who could blame <laughs> him? Like, like, <laughs> like a beatnik, really. And, yeah. And so he's, he's just, just kind of hanging on yeah. to Portago's coattails. And, and so he was exactly the kind of person that, that, Enzo distrusted and 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 you know, disliked. I mean, yeah. Enzo's favorite drivers were the guys that came up from their bootstraps. Like Surtees had been a motorcycle racer, came from nothing. Gilles Villeneuve had been a a, a, a snowmobile racer and came from nothing. Fangio. Oh, yeah, those were the guys. Well, actually, he actually had a really bad relationship with Fangio. Well, he did with Surtees. He eventually has a bad relationship with all of them. Well, that's true. That is true. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the, he really dis trusted guys like Portago, but Portago could drive, but he was, you know, famously kind of hard on his cars. And, 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 you know, one of the theories as to why that the tires blew was because he had been chewing away at him, you know, driving in his usual ham fisted style. Uh, he was fast, but again, he was hard on his car. Unlike Phil Hill, who, you know, famously could drive an entire, you know, 24 hour Le Mans and the car would be perfect at the end yeah. of it. Um, you know, Portago was really hard on his cars and, and, uh, so, you know, that, that, that dynamic that he had with his drivers was, uh, you know, he, he really did have favorites and, and, you know, he played these, these mind games with, them, <laughs> you know, trying to extract the best performance. Yeah. You know, in, in my, my, one of my problems with the movie is the way it's structured, actually, the crash comes right at the end, which I, I think they should have done the crash towards the beginning. And then the, the story, they could have played out the entire story that they had in the movie, but it should have been after the crash. Um, as you say, it occurred in May, kind of at the beginning of the racing season and, and what the fallout, I mean, again, you know, the, the court case stretched on until 19, four years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he was called into court and he, he's on the stand and he bursts into tears finally under questioning. He says, I don't know why he crashed. You no, know, the engineers tell me the tire blew, but I, I don't know why, uh, you know, it's this really dramatic moment in the courtroom. And, uh, 
you know, again, uh, there were protesters outside the factory. I mean, it was it was really a, a tough. There was a huge amount of fallout from that crash that that's not really discussed in the film, which I think would have been more interesting than the stuff. Yeah, but you know, the thing that would have been tough about that, if if I were the filmmakers, I would have thought like, well, I know it was tough after the crash, but you know, in 1955 they had that big massacre at Le Mans, and that race continued. There was another death at um, uh, was it Musso? died at Mo- Modena Speedway or some, one of them died and there was a there was like an engineer at Ferrari brought up on manchester charges it was like everybody was being blamed for this stuff except of course the organizers that could have kept the spectators away I mean, right, sort right. of like crazy illogical but I was thinking um when I walked out I was like you know 57 was such an interesting year because the year before in 56 uh, they won the Formula One championship, Ferrari did, but they did it because a, uh, a company called Lancia had built these incredible Formula One cars that everybody knew was going to sweep the field, but then they ran out of money and drive to com- campaign the cars. Enzo went and said, hey, let's keep this in Italy. Help me out. I'm having a bad year. They gave the Lancia D50s to Enzo, and they went and won the Formula One World Championship in 56. So 57, now he's got nothing. You know, and and Maserati's back and things like that. And that was the start of really a big trough for Ferrari that they they didn't dig out of. I thought what would have been fun is to see that trough. And then the success was obviously the, uh, I think it was 61, the the 156 F1 car, the beautiful shark nose thing. Right. That Phil Hill won the world championship with. With the the Dino V6. With Dino V6. Technically, they said designed by his son. I, I just thought that would have been like, oh, wow, you could have seen the behind the scenes because, I mean, it, what, what shocked me, like 47, he has, he has a guy named Columbo design a V12. And then Columbo goes back to Alfa Romeo. He brings in, uh, is it Lampretti to pick up the drawings? And Lampretti goes, oh, this is junk. He starts fresh with another V12. Oh, but they keep this V12. And then Lampretti's out. Columbo's back. And then another guy back. Oh, Yano's back. He's the brilliant guy. Yano's here. Yano, yeah, Yano's here in 54. I mean, to me, like, there was so much intrigue. And in the 50s, that intrigue was sort of working in his favor. And, and then in the 60s, after that 156 is when all of it came home to roost and the company became so dysfunctional, it almost collapsed, right? I, yeah. I just think there's so much there. And you're right. Well, now yeah. we're back to a 10-part Netflix series. Let's produce it, Aaron. You and I were right. Well, I mean, and that's the thing. If they'd done this 10-part miniseries, we would yeah. all get what we wanted. You could get right. the bedroom story with the wife and the mistress, <laughs> and we would get all the racing and the, you know, the yeah. fun stuff. So, you know, yeah. uh, oh, well, hopefully, maybe someday. Uh, I mean, I totally bought Adam Driver's Enzo Ferrari. I, I did, too. Right. I thought he did a great I, job. I thought Patrick Dempsey looked exactly like Piero Taruffi and was mm-hmm. kind of wasted. I would have liked to have seen more time on screen with him. Uh, and, um, well, you know, we know that the Mila Mille was a time trial. So the cars didn't race next to each other. They said it either passed each other. So that was a total Hollywood fake. Right. <laughs> the thing that bothered me, um, and I don't know, you might know better, like the V12s I've heard, from that period didn't sound like that those the engine sounds they had i was like god that sounds too close to a v8 to me did you feel like it was pretty legit because the one thing they really needed to get right was that that engine sound what did you think honestly i don't remember noticing one way or the other okay so uh, then it wasn't it it wasn't a foul good i mean they they had a bunch of cars with i think v8 they built a bunch of cars yeah because they obviously these cars are invaluable and they can't be actually filmed and raced and everything so they built a bunch of cars to the film for the live action sequences right um I mean, 
you know, let's face it, nobody has filmed a good live action racing sequence in a very long time. I mean, personally, I think that, that the secret of doing it died with John Frankenheimer in 2002. He directed, you know, Grand Prix back in 1966. There just hasn't really been a great, you know, and I'm sure people will argue, but I don't think there's been a great racing film since then. And, and the, the development of CGI has only made it worse. Um, you know, because all these directors are like, yeah, reality plus 10%. But then when we watch the, the racing, it's like reality plus 3,000%. Yeah. It's like, you know, <laughs> it, know, it just doesn't. Boom, it all of a sudden flips. <laughs> Wait, what? Was there, there a hydraulic jack under that thing? What, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think Ford versus Ferrari wasn't bad, that the live action good. sequences in Ford versus Ferrari are actually pretty well filmed. Look, yeah, yeah. there's some tropes where the guy looks over and, oh, the guy's like, oh, he's going to step on the accelerator more. He's going down the mole's on. He's like, oh, yeah, I was only doing 50% throttle. I'll give at the hundred percent now that I see I'm being passed, you know, and they lock eyes on the you know, Talladega Nights was pretty good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, Shake and <laughs> it was eminently watchable. Um, I love that. But, yeah, movie. I mean, there just really hasn't been good, you know, racing, you know, even that, even the Nikki Lada James Hunt film. You know, yeah, the racing sequences I don't think were particularly well filmed, uh, in my opinion. Um, everything that was most yeah. interesting about that movie happened off the track. So we're yeah, still I mean, waiting. We're still waiting for the great racing movie, you know? Yeah. And I mean, again, it brings God, to mind, like, there's a couple of my favorite, uh, I was thinking that we should tell people about, you know, if you really want to know more the, the, there's a really terrific documentary about this period called Ferrari race to immortality. And I don't know if you've had a chance to see it. It's, it's fantastic. I mean, it has so much like footage from the time and it, it talks about this traveling circus of these Grand Prix drivers and what a romantic time it was, even though they're dying left and right. And, um, I well, thought it really captures so much more of a carny show than it is today. I mean, you yeah. know, it was really kind of, you know, these guys drove around in their own cars and they, they, you know, I mean, it's not like jets today. They're flying around in jets and helicopters, you know, back then they, they drove from venue to venue and, and yeah. stay in these little hotels and they all live together. And, um, you know, the cars would show up on these trucks that, you know, were otherwise would be hauling garbage. And, you know, so, you know, it was, it was a much was more, much more of a carny show, like a low rent thing back then than it is today. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we were speaking about the, the hard it is to film uh, racing so that somebody who's done it uh, feels like it's accurate. It brings to mind the, the, you know, the sort of quixotic quest of Steve McQueen. Right. And that's really what he was trying to do with that movie, Lamar. And um, he, you know, he, he almost killed a guy in the process. The guy lost his leg. You know, he ground through so many writers and directors. He ruined careers trying to do it. And and including did he get own. it right? <laughs> what? Including, including his own? Himself. Yeah, he completely <laughs> lost. Well, he, it totally he, ruined his racing career. He said after he made that film that he lost all interest in racing. It's just, just, just Yeah, but even he didn't really capture it. He, he got pretty close and, you know, but maybe it's just not something you can capture. I don't know. All right, well, that was for a, a lot of... For a lot of people, that is their fa their favorite racing movie, and it's it's partly it's due terrible. to the time period and the cars. You know, Ugh. um, it's fun to watch if you're a car person. It's fun to watch. I'm I mean, not sure you know, about the that. Race, the racing sequences are are amazing. You know, it's all live action. Yeah, uh, and they are destroying cars left and right, and you know, and they actually shot around the actual race in 1970. So, um, there's just no story. I mean, that's it's like it's about 12 horrendous. lines of dialogue in the whole movie, and and there's really no story. So. 
for some people that's enough you know they really it's more of a documentary really than it is a than it is a feature film or a you know dramatic film so well if you haven't done i bet you have but maybe any listeners out there the movie you really need to watch is uh the man in lamar and that's the documentary of the making of lamar with mcqueen did you have a chance to see that no, I didn't even know there was a movie. I've got the, the book, A French Kiss with Death, which is I'll send you the documentary. Over. It has this part in it because, you know, McQueen had done Bullet and it was so commercially successful. He had carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. The studios are just going to throw him money. And he starts solar production. He wants to make Le Mans. And almost immediately, June, after that race is, and he's got, you know, the house south of France rented out for three weeks. That They're bleeding money. And the reports are we have no story. So they start sending in the heavy hitter, the writers. And they, they sent in the writer who wrote, I think, Bullet. Really accomplished guy and made a ton of money. And they're going over the script. Of course, there is no script. They're filming like crazy. They have no script. And it's this great scene where, where the writer is trying to make sense of McQueen's thing. And the scene starts with uh, McQueen comes into a room. His romantic interest is in the room. And he's he, McQueen's in all his racing gear. And the woman says... Hi. And that's all we have. And the writer goes, okay, Steve. He walks in the room. His, his love interest says, hi. Now he has to say something back. What's he going to say? And there's this long pause. Steve McQueen goes, not necessarily. That's it. <laughs> that was the end of the movie. <laughs> that movie's brilliant. I mean, we'll put the link in the show notes. I mean, it, it was so fascinating what they went through and what men will go through. And, and, um, he did. He just ruined careers and he was untouchable and nobody could pull him aside and punch him in the face and say, dude, enough. Let's get a movie out of this. So, yeah, it did. It ruined his career. What's your wait? OK, I, I just named Talladega Nights, not really a racing film, but kind of and really fantastic movie. I actually have neighbors who've never seen it. I'm disgusted by that. I mean, that's a really good movie. What are your what are some of your other favorites? Favorite racing movie or car? Yeah, movie? racing movies. Racing movie, uh, well, I think Grand Prix is kind of at the top of the list. I mean, it mm. is both excellently filmed and also uh, there's a story. You yeah. wonder whether the story is any good or not. But at least the, the thing I like about Grand Prix is it actually goes out of its way to explain why this is difficult and dangerous. You know, I mean, there's what a year are we, that wait, we, wait, could you just back up, explain to everybody what year this movie is, who's in it? Give us a little background, people don't know. So this this movie came out in 1966. It was John. It was, it was directed by John Frankenheimer. It stars um, James uh, Garner, James Garner, mm -hmm. and uh, Eve Marie Saint, and Ease uh, 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 Montad as the Ferrari driver. And mm -hmm. and um, it's really it's an entire Formula One season. And all the drama that happens both on the track and off the track and with the manufacturers and, and with their love interests. And, and it's, mm -hmm. it's really, to me, I think the best portrait of yeah. what racing was like back then. And, and I've met Frankenheimer years ago, actually at Brock Yates' house. And, um, you know, he told us these great stories about how they filmed the movie and everything. And so it has a very special place in my heart. I really do think it's the best racing movie that's been ever that that's ever been made um as far as all-encompassing you know both drama and and racing and you know and, yeah i mean and it, it, explaining it, the sport and you know one thing that that um uh wasn't done in rush um uh, that you know it's clear that um the director uh, opie um 
made Apollo 13. Ron Howard. <laughs> Ron Howard, thank you. Uh, one thing that Ron Howard didn't care about was the racing. Didn't explain why this was a difficult sport. You know, it might as well be two guys at war in a foxhole, oh, right? yeah, I don't every know if I agree with that. The, every time they go out on track, they could die. Same thing in a war. Every time you get out of the foxhole, you might get shot. I mean, it was really, it could have been two buddies in a foxhole, but they happened to be racing in a Formula One circuit. And he doesn't really explain the, the sport to me. Um, well, and well yeah, let's go back. That's one thing. Garner, go back to Grand Prix that, for a second, because I think you're onto something there. Um, and meaning like James Garner plays like a driver who had some success, but it's sort of aging out of the career. Right? right. And he's trying to make sure he's, he keeps a ride. And that's like, not only does he have this stress of driving, he has the stress of keeping his job. And then what I loved about that movie, correct me if I'm wrong here. There is a Japanese company that shows up with a new car. And that's always a dice roll. Is a car going to be any good? And the driver has to decide if I don't have the right horse, I'm not going to win. And then my career is over. Or is this the lifeline I need? And the movie has a good bit of that if memory serves, right? Yeah. There's this Japanese firm called Yamura, which is supposed to be Honda. Honda, And Frankenheimer actually approached Honda, but they were not interested in in playing. Honda at the time was very active in Grand Prix racing. Yeah. Um, But they were not interested in playing along. So he created this fake company, Yamura. And, um, you know, Frankenheimer just does a better job of reaching the non-racing audience with a movie that still reaches the racing audience. Yeah. I mean, you know, at this, you know, they said, how, how did they make Top Gear? And they were interviewing the guy who created Top Gear. And they said, well, how'd you make Top Gear successful? And he says, well, we know we had the car guys. We had to get their moms and their girlfriends. You know, that was, the, <laughs> that, that was how you make a successful show. It is. And yeah, me, you gotta get us. Yeah. You can argue about whether the story is any good in Grand Prix, but it does actually make an effort to reach outside the hardcore, you know, car-loving group and reach other audiences. And to me, that's a noble effort, you know. Um, whereas if you take Rush, they're really not interested in the racing at all. I mean, it's cool for us because we like to see those cars running on the track. But they don't really talk about the race. He's more interested in the two guys and their relationship. Um, and so, you know, to me, Grand Prix is just the best fusion of those two. And, and then at the far extreme is Le Mans, which is all about the racing and has no story Terrible. whatsoever, you know. Uh, so I can't. I don't know if I can recommend anybody watch them all. Yeah, I, I actually, Aaron, I don't know oh, if come they're. On. I, I, I think yeah, the, really you you don't want to watch a film, you know, on the screen of a of a Porsche nine seventeen going three hundred miles an hour down. The maybe I could. Really? No, maybe, I just that remember the first time you? I I felt like the dumbest hick in the woods the first time I watched Le Mans thirty years ago. I was like, I don't get it. What's the point of this? Like, I wasn't aware enough to be like, God, this is no story. I just thought I missed it. I'm like, what did I miss? No, it's really, there's nothing there to miss. Okay. Well, what about, I was, um, <laughs> when I was that age, I was like, 917 is going down the, down the mules on. You got me. I'm done. I, I'm in. <laughs> That's all it took. I didn't yeah, care about the maybe story. Maybe she's a little more <laughs> open-minded, but I think there's so many terrific documentaries out there. And, uh, you know, the one I just mentioned about the making of Le Mans, was really it's a really good primer on racing it's a very good human interest story i i'm always surprised these don't do better you know the ferrari one that i just mentioned did you ever see dust to glory the one about the baja 1000 fantastic Uh, movie yeah you know made by Uh, the guy who did on any sunday i mean that was terrific bruce mclaren documentary is actually the bruce mclaren Uh, one yeah. Stronger so the documentaries seem to me where it's at because, you know, just like we were talking about with Enzo, the, 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 the facts of his life are so freaking fascinating. Like what you need to do is just really present them in a, in an orderly and clear way and just get the hell out of the way because it's already unbelievable. Right. Oh, he's, he doesn't a, agree. 
No, no, because I think the filmmaker's job is to answer the central questions. And to me, the central question of Enzo is, again, why is he doing this? And the film doesn't answer that. And, mm. um, you know, if you, watch, if you watch the Bruce McLaren movie or if you watch Senna, you know, there's this attempt to unravel the character. And why, why are they doing this, this crazy, insane sport, you know? And, and I think that's, um, that was a failure on, on, um, uh, you know, I, I, I do but not I, think that's an answerable question, Aaron. That doesn't stop people from trying to answer it, though, and and answer it in an entertaining way. I mean, like, again, I have my own theories. Perhaps, you know, I'm sure Brock had his theories. Um, that's that's the filmmaker's job, you know, because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, human beings want to watch stories about human beings, right? I mean, yeah, we all love cars, but it's the human story that grabs us all. For sure. It's not the cars. And so the questions of the movie should be upon, and something that Steve McQueen missed in Le Mans, is that the, the central character should be the person and, and, and what drives that person and, and, you know, what are the struggles that they have? You know, the cars are incidental we are hardwired our brains are hardwired to want to watch humans other humans stories about human beings you know that's just the way we are you know and and even with the stories about animals we anthropomorphize it and and and, and see human qualities in animals and so again you can't just make a, a movie about cars you gotta have a story that discusses human frailty human problems human okay, ambition I, I, I totally agree but i think you can layer in a lot more cars <laughs> how about that <laughs> well, I really ferrari, think you could can. <laughs> ferrari could have there could have been more cars there could have been more characters there could have been i think what we've uh i think what we're saying is and if i let me summarize because we gotta we gotta wrap this up um we're, we're grateful that all those talented people put their energy into Enzo Ferrari. And there's aspects to see him on screen as a living, breathing person that I really enjoyed that part of it. Totally watchable. Italy in Everybody the 50s. Yes. Like, Italy's in the 50s. Like, holy smokes, what are we doing? What am I doing here in Michigan in January? Why am I here? This this is <laughs> stupid. What, what? How dumb am I? I should be in Italy. Uh, and so, in the 1950s. <laughs> well, yeah, whatever. I mean, it's like the dreamiest place on earth. They must put some filter on the whole thing. It's like all light after 4 p.m. I mean, it's just, it's, Gorgeous. Um, the uh, I think for the car people, it missed, like you said, what Top Gear had to do is really get the car people first and then their their moms and their dads and their aunts and uncles. I don't think this movie got the car people. Um, would you say that's fair? Yeah, I, I yeah. would say that's fair. Yeah. I, I don't think that was their... They, they were, it wasn't they their intent. It, yeah, it was, they weren't that interested in that subject. Right. But we think for our listeners, there's so much other Ferrari stuff out there. We've just mentioned a couple of books. Uh, I think, you know, who has time to read anymore? We get it, but that audiobook of Brock's book is it's really a terrific thing. I I had a like a nine hour car ride. It flew by. And usually I don't listen to audiobooks, but you know, Yates has done such a good job of that. Um, where was I going with this? I kind of lost my train of thought, but I was thinking more along the lines like somebody still needs to tell the Ferrari story in a more complete, visual, cinematic way. And yeah, I, I mean, you know this Ferrari movie was in in the works for decades. Like, I think they optioned the book, what, in like the early 2000s. So Brock was yeah. still alive. Lots of rumored leads. Yeah. Role. Just um, seemed to be drilling forever, right? It wasn't, uh, Christian Bale was supposed to play the main character at some right. point. I think Adam Driver did a really good job, but yeah, so I, do too. I wonder who is going to, um, 
that needs to happen. I mean, Aaron, that 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 should be our retirement project. You and I should we should do that. We'll start writing the screenplay. What do you think? You want to do that? How, how to make a small fortune? Well, it'll be start really with a big fun. Fortune and attempt to make a film. You can't take it with you. It's the way to go out. I mean, look how long it took these guys to get this thing in production, and they all work in the business. Yeah. It is an issue. Go talk to McKeel. He's got money. Yeah, I'll have a little chat with McKeel, see what he can do. Um, so uh, thank you for that talk. Uh, next, we're going to listen to my interview with uh, my buddy Tom Nardone. He's just an interesting guy. He's a lot. There's a little bit of Enzo in him in that he's uh, he started as a car person, went as an engineer in the car business, and then he started starting his own companies. And he became really successful at that. So he tells us a little bit about how the automotive industry works. Um, what it means to be an entrepreneur, how hard the grind is and how he sort of comes up with a bunch of ideas. And then he's got a system where he decides which is the right one to pursue. So I hope everybody enjoys that. Uh, I hope you enjoy it, Aaron. And, um, thank you so much for your time today. It's fun to talk. Always. To you. Yeah. Enjoyed it. Okay, everybody. Let's listen to my interview with Tom Nardone. Uh, well, today we have the uh, pleasure of speaking with Tom Nardone. He is what I call an engineer torn entrepreneur, if I said that right. Uh, Mr. Nardone started his first business, and I knew him way back when. He was still working at Ford. Um, back then, the internet, it's hard to imagine, was new. And Tom recognized the power of the anonymity that the internet provided. Now, I remember you saying people would probably use it to buy products they were embarrassed to buy in person. And this was where the fun started. Because you built your own website, and then when the orders came in, you're not embarrassed at all. And you'd go to the store, and you'd buy the condoms and the tampons and the hair-growing gels, and you'd mail them out. And, you know, that business grew fast, and then you left Ford. And that was over 20 years ago. And in that time, Nardone started over half a dozen companies. You've written books. You started charities. And you even did a TED Talk where you said this phrase that's really near and dear to me. It is, and I'm going to quote here. Doing something is better than doing nothing, which is what I, I love that thing. And and you, uh, Nardone, like me, followed his automotive industry to a job in the automotive industry and then very successfully pivoted from it. And I was curious to know why. So, Tom, hi. Thank you for being here. Always a pleasure, Larry. Good, good, good. So why don't we start back, you know, way, way back. What made you, you know, you had a good gig at Ford. I, I, I remember. Right. I did. You did. When you're an engineer, right? You race motorcycles. You love cars, correct? Yeah, yeah. We raced go karts together. You and I. All right, we did. Larry Webster uh, punted me off a turn once. I feel still so guilty about that, Tom. You do not. You don't. Even I do. Remember it. I totally do. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but, tell uh, us, what was it about Ford? What did you reckon? Tell us what you were doing. What what gave you the um, the gumption to start something new? What were the signs about the industry that made you think it's something different? Oh, uh, well, first of all, I want to let everyone know I loved working at Ford. I worked like my whole college career. And after I got out of college, I didn't get hired there. And I worked, I got my master's degree just so that they would hire me. Just at Ford. Yeah, GM. Uh, well, I, I would have taken any of them, but I really wanted to work at Ford. Yeah. And uh, when I was in college, I interviewed with Chrysler, you know, at the time Chrysler, Stellantis mm -hmm. or whatever, but it was Chrysler back then. And um, I just want to, and then I, I'm from the East Coast, like Larry, mm -hmm. and I just didn't grow up in an automotive environment, you know, but mm -hmm. I loved cars. I couldn't get enough. I read every page of every magazine. I, I had an encyclopedic knowledge. Mm, sounds familiar. Yeah. Yes. 
<laughs> and I just couldn't make them hire me. So I just kept trying and trying. I finally got a job there. And at that time, at that point, I was really like adept at just manipulating people to get the job position I wanted. So when I was at Ford, I started yeah. as a structures engineer. I did the unibody type of thing. Kidding. Yeah, which was like core business. And uh, mm -hmm. that's a core business. Uh, almost all of the investment in a new vehicle either goes into powertrain or body structure. Got it. So I used that knowledge and sort of my knowledge of the rest of the car to get a job in what was called the business planning office. And business planning mm -hmm. is done the most in the future. It's like the most Fun. futuristic part of the industry. Before they even do a concept car, someone writes mm -hmm. a business plan for it. And I got to be that guy. Is this where you're planning like a suite of sports cars for the future? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I enough, actually. Enough, I'm tired of this, this Explorer business. Let's make something good. Right. Well, actually, I worked in truck. Oh. So I took the job I could get. I worked in truck and I, um, I worked on a bunch of things. I, it was a very small team, two guys. And the guy who was um, my team lead, like I was the junior guy, he was the senior mm -hmm. guy, mm -hmm. he invented the Lincoln Navigator. Like no he invented kidding. the domestic luxury SUV. And was that before, so that was a really uh, a feature heavy luxury version of the Expedition, which is sort of a utility version of a pickup. Right. Was that before the Cadillac Escalade? It was way before. It? We yeah, wow. Lincoln dominated the market. It was. Um, in what fact, year are we talking? It was. Uh, this would have been 1996, seven. Wow. And they introduced it. I believe it was a 98 model year. Might have been a 97. Mm -hmm. And Cadillac for like a year and a half scrambled to put together like a warmed over Yukon that they called the first Escalade. Got and it, it was. It was barely anything in it. It was whatever they could get into it. A new grill and some stitching on the seats. And meanwhile, Lincoln had this power folding third seat and all this other jibber jabber, you know. Was, so if you're a car company, you have a base product that costs you fifty thousand bucks. Oh, if you could add in two thousand dollars worth of features but charge twenty thousand more, which is really what works with these luxury SUVs, right? right? It's gold. It's and you know what? I hear people say this all the time. You put in $2,000 worth of features and you get 20 grand more for it. Yeah. And it's absolutely positively correct. Get out. It, it, Seriously? It is. <laughs> it is absolutely correct. The business planning <laughs> with automotive is so wild. Yeah. The worst is economy cars. Because yeah. if you think about all the components in like, a, like I didn't work on uh, economy cars, but if you think of all the components that are in yep. a Ford Fusion, for example, sure. and a Ford Focus, they're the same. Yep. There is no one item that isn't in both vehicles. Right, except, right? I mean, there's more metal and material in a Fusion. It's a larger car, right? 10% more, 5% I mean, more. Cheap, steel's cheap, right? Steel's like, cheap, yeah. You're still stamping it. You're stamping it the same number of times. Sure. There's the same number of folds. Yeah, yeah, sure, the door's six inches longer in the back or something. But trivial. it's the same. Trivial, right. absolutely trivial. Okay. There's still four wheels. There's still four brake discs. There's still four <laughs> calipers with two pistons each. I mean, it is. There's still yeah. four cylinders. There's still right. four fuel injectors. Four, All the same. And, but for some reason you get, you know, you get four grand more for a fusion and then you yeah. get four, another four grand more if you make a Lincoln version. So don't, it, it is a fascinating psychology oh, thing and, and it, it, we're a little bit off topic, but it's to, to that, it, it always knowing what a poor business, small cars are when the, the high luxury German manufacturers, Mercedes, BMW, Audi started 
going down to that realm, presumably to chase volume. Mm-hmm. I was always like, what are they That's doing? Is there. I mean, they yeah. got there where everybody wants to go. I mean, yeah, well, nobody wants to be there. Uh, when well, it sounds Ford like an decided, interesting job. Yeah, it was great. I loved it. When Ford decided not to make cars, I was like, boy, finally, you know, like, what? like you make Mustangs when they got out of the focus and the, and the fusion and they just said, we're only car we're going to make is Mustang. Oh, recently, recently. I was like, that's uh, smart because so even the back then, thing, 20, yeah. wait, 25 years ago, 25 you're saying years ago. you recognize that the only thing that makes this company a dime are the trucks. No, I didn't. Everybody knew it. Oh, really? Nobody, it didn't take any recognition. If cafe didn't exist, you know, the corporate average fuel economy didn't yeah, exist. Yeah. No one would mess with those cars at all get out yeah it's wild no the consumers didn't want them they didn't want to pay for them they didn't want to pay what they cost to make i see okay. so it was pretty so you're, wild you're there thinking about the future which you're good at you, you i'm got, writing got business bit, plans yeah I'm writing you're writing business, business plans, plans. Yeah. Yeah. so what 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 happened i wrote a business plan for i was um i was a nerd i still am and uh <laughs> And uh, applies uh, to both of us, yes. Yeah, and uh, even nerdier friend of mine, his name's Alan. Alan Skenazzi. Yeah. So if he's listening, he's probably not. But Alan Skenazzi introduced me to the internet, and uh, got me my. I had a Mac at home, and it got me online. And I uh, built a web page, and then uh, I just looked at this internet, and people were doing things on the internet they would never do in person. Sure. And uh, I just thought, oh, man, the only thing at the time, there were very few images on the Internet. Like there were chat rooms. I and, remember the uh, chat rooms. Yeah. And there were pornographic images of pictures. Uh-huh. And um, and I just thought looking at porn and having chat room love affairs is a weird behavior. <laughs> like, what are people doing? I thought. <laughs> and then there was a Newsweek okay. had a cover article about Jeff Bezos selling things online. Uh-huh. And uh, QVC had an online store. And I just thought at the time, Amazon didn't even have photographs of the books. They only sold books and they didn't have a picture of the cover of the book. Wow. Just the, just the description from the like book database. And I thought, boy, people are shying to shop online when this guy, if this guy can get pictures of things, the books, it's going to be brilliant. And uh, I thought maybe people will buy embarrassing things online. So I started my company, Priveco, private company yeah there was a lot of stories with that it was shoppingprivate.com i remember um, yeah shoppingprivate was our first website yeah i i loved when you're just going to the people are afraid to buy this stuff you're just not you're going to the right aid buying this <laughs> i stuff. hated it I oh you did it. yeah but i did it for money it's still, <laughs> yeah it's getting paid and to then it. pretty early on somebody tried to rip off your idea with something called embarrassed to buy do you remember that anecdote yeah i think so yeah i think there was a couple private shoppers well, embarrassed the, the, to buy, embarrassed to buy. Yeah. The one I remember, um, cause it was doing well. And the one I remember you, you sit there and you thought, this is where I thought you were thinking on another level than the rest of us, because you sort of realized, wait, embarrassed is really hard to spell. And <laughs> you went and before this was regular, you registered all the misspellings. I did. I and did. I remember this is an old story. This is an old story. It's one of my favorites. I, I haven't heard this story in 20 years. Yeah. So but, I, um, uh, yeah, that's right. Somebody tried to copy my business idea with a website. Had you left called, Ford by then? Yeah, I had left Ford. Yeah. Okay. I think, how long? I think wait, that, wait. Can we back up? How long yeah. after shoppingprivate.com went live to you quit Ford? Okay. Uh, shoppingprivate.com went live on October 1st, 1998. 
Wow. I uh, took a week off of work, two weeks off, and I, oh, get that, you like this. This is a time capsule item. At the time, computers connected to everything with a modem, but uh-huh. modems could be used as fax machines as well. Oh. So I got a list of all the fax numbers of every college newspaper in the country. I bought a list, and I programmed my Mac to send them all a press release. Next level. Next and it level, took Tom. like 36 hours of just tiling. And then I sat at home and I did press interviews for a week. And that's how I launched the company. Like our first, in, we figured college students of everybody would be most embarrassed by, you know, condoms and that type of thing. Interesting. Why? Yeah. I mean, I got and, so many questions. Yeah. But, so October 1st, it goes live. October 1st, it goes live. Um, by Valentine's Day, we were written up in In Style Magazine, which was like a ladies magazine. National Magazine. National Magazine. And I had been written up in the Wall Street Journal as well. And amazing. Uh, yeah, we did. I think in February, I did like fifteen thousand dollars in sales. That so would have been ninety nine, February ninety nine. Yeah, February ninety nine. Yep. So we were mm-hmm. four months old, and so with fifteen thousand in sales, I was making like four or five grand in gross profit, and I was like, oh boy, like this is growing really fast, and I can make money. So I uh, put in my notice, and I left for it on March first. Four months later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. They had me work. My boss was like, if you like quit February 27th, uh, if you leave March 1st, you'll get another month's free insurance. That would <laughs> so be they, important. So they planned my, uh, so they, they, yeah, so they planned my going away, um, my going away lunch. Holy and I thought it, everyone was like, oh, it seems so risky. It seems so risky. And I was like, it's not risky. My guys at Ford would hire me back in a minute. Oh, I see. You felt like you could get back in, but they had started they doing did, layoffs. Oh, they were like, they were, they were so, it, they were so proud of me. Like Tom's supposed to write a business, business plans. And he wrote a business plan and it works. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote it for himself. Yeah. You want to hear about my life? I have, I think the most sensational thing I've ever done is my last day of work at Ford. Did I ever tell you this story? No. Oh, uh, well, if we're telling stories today, is do Let's I have the it. permission, Larry? Whatever it is. Okay. Do you know that uh, General Motors bought Hummer? Yes. Yeah. Well, before GM bought Hummer, AM General had kind of gone out of business, the Hummer business, and a guy named Ira Rennert bought the business. He, so AM General was a standalone company supplying the Hummer to the American military, mm-hmm, right? Yep. And it went under. And a guy out of New York bought the company and um, for $130 million, which Oof, $130 million is, would pay like Ford Motor Company to like freshen a vehicle, like put new headlights and bumpers on it. It's nothing. Yep. No money. Okay. So okay. at the time... We realized Ford did not have any rugged vehicle, rugged SUV in the showroom. No Bronco, no no nothing. Yeah, right. Okay. So like we had Expedition, and we were gonna come out with the Excursion, and we had the Explorer, which was getting softer. We had nothing rugged. So I wrote the business plan: we should buy AM General from this guy who paid 130 million dollars for it. We should stick a Ford Power Stroke diesel in it and stick them on every showroom in America. 
Why? Pe- people would come in to see it thinking they want one. They'd test drive it and then they'd buy an expedition. So this was more a marketing tool than a product. Like every supercar ever made. Like the Viper in the, the showroom is what like I... Like the yeah. GT, you know, like the Ford GT or whatever yeah. you got. You know, it's just showroom, you know, showroom magnet. So is that re- that really works, the showroom magnet? So you yeah, almost... yeah, business works, yeah. yeah. Why did it get shot down then? Okay, so we put together a $300 million budget, 200 to buy the company and go down there. And um, AM General had an office in Detroit. And the president of AM General at the time was a former uh-huh. body engineer. <laughs> his name was Jim Armour. So he okay. loved me. Like we got, we went to lunch once and we hit it off and he saw me as the key to the dollar signs. So he gave me his Hummer H1 to, oh, uh, uh, it was just called a Hummer at the time, you know, to drive around. I drove it around an entire Christmas holiday and I loved it. And it was just a blast. And we went down to sort of, we were in negotiations with AM General about the buy and we, my last day of work, we flew the Ford private jet down to AM General to meet with Jim Armour and his team. Wow. And we were going to present our offer. I think it was like, I think initial offer was like 190 million or something. It's all these VPs. I was the juniorest person there. And uh, we went down there and we were ready to present our offer. And Jim Armour says, guys, this offer better be really strong because the boys in white shirts we're down here last week. That means General Motors. The, oh, okay. they had, at the time, they were required to wear white dress shirts. We were not. So white shirts meant GM. Yeah. And uh, so basically, yeah. we said, well, our number was like going to be this. And he was like, oh, no. Like the GM number is way higher. So we're like, <laughs> all right, guess we're not buying it. So then they took us to Hummer Driving School. And we drove like they had an obstacle course down there that you could drive all the things a Hummer could do. They had yep. a 50 inch deep or 30 inch deep stream and you could go through it and the water would flood up over to the seats. And then they had a Jersey barrier you could drive over. It was nuts. Yeah, it was pretty and amazing. Then, yeah. So that was my day of work. And then we got in the Ford private jet. My boss's boss announced that it was my last day that I had started a company. They apparently there's a fridge in the Ford private jet that has beers in it. They opened up the thing. We all drank a toast and we flew home and, and we landed in the Ford hangar and I, and I drove home from work on my last day. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> also, I'm thinking, were you like, what am I doing? I'm, I'm not even 40 and I'm already on the corporate. I wasn't even 30. Trip. I was 28. See what I mean? Like you, you were going places. I, had a, I, was, I was having a good time. I was, I just would say, you know, I was, I, it was just a thing. So since then, I mean, that's a great origin story. How many companies have you started and built? <clears throat> There's one company. It's always been the one company, Priveco. It wasn't okay. always called Priveco. It was called Isdera Corporation because I wanted to make enough money to buy an Isdera. That was the, was that a Maserati? No, it's a German mid-engine car. A guy would take a mid-Mercedes. The Mercedes. V12. Yes. One of yeah. those just sold last summer for a I couple saw million it. bucks. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, that, yeah, it's a pretty cool car. So I guess I failed because I wasn't the guy who bought it. <laughs> well, okay, I, but it's we're going to jump around because that story is so interesting because you actually daily drove a Hummer for a while, which I was like, where did yeah. this Hummer thing come from? Um, like, yeah. What is, like, what was that like? So this is what it was. You've <laughs> always had a love for Hummer since that no, time? No, I had no, no love for Hummer. Oh. I only, well, since I, 
almost bought the company, almost, you know, since I was involved in buying the company. And yeah. what really did it for me was going to the Hummer driving school. Sure. Yeah. It was just like, oh, this thing is crazy, like yeah. crazy capable, ridiculous vehicle, absolutely yep. ridiculous. But, um, I did own one for five years. I, and, uh, the problem with owning a Hummer or Humvee is you can't get anyone to work on it. So you have to do everything yourself. Oh, because the lifts don't fit it, all that Nothing. stuff, right? Nobody will touch it. I had, it, I couldn't get why? anyone why won't they to touch it? align it. I couldn't get anyone to do an alignment on it. Why? Because it's too big for the equipment? I went to the truck of every alignment shop. I was like, oh, go to this truck place where they do alignments on dump trucks. Sure. And they wouldn't touch it. They're like, no, no, we're not, we're not working. We don't work on that stuff. <laughs> What about the GM dealers, the Chevy dealers? No, they're all sold? they're all gone. Yeah, actually, the um, I had a Humvee. It's a long story, but I just ended up doing a stringing, you know, like the NASCAR boys used to do. Yeah, you I did it, it with sure. string and angle iron. I got it pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, race car guys do their own alignments. You of probably course, do yeah. alignments on your car. So yeah, yeah, I do alignments, but it's yeah. a pain. I, okay, so that yeah, was one of the killers of the Humvee experience. No, that wasn't. The killer zombie experience was was noisy and smelled bad. That was just a pain in the ass. It was great. When I got it, my kid, my oldest kid was in fifth grade. And Larry knows I live in a ritzy town. You know, everybody's got like the range. You're an entrepreneur. Of course you do, Tom. Everybody's got the latest, you know, the latest latest Land Rover, the latest whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Or they work at one of the big three. So they have the latest Escalade and they're driving. So I would drive my kid to school in a Humvee. And the, the other dads would just be pissed. So it was a competition at the school line. Oh, well, it was like, I avoided the, you know, like they zigged and I zagged. Okay. Got it. Got That's it. Good. Okay. So you started these companies, um, uh-huh. you know, I guess you're right. They're all under the big umbrella, Priveco. Yeah, they're all and, about privacy in some way, I guess. Most you know, your latest is this interesting product, which mm-hmm. you're wearing the shirt. It's called Dignity Lifts. I'm I'm so shocked. There was two things that you've done that and the bulletproof vest mm-hmm. that you had found this un unexplored niche. The dignity lifts to me seem like such a no brainer, but there is is yours the only one on the market? And you should probably explain what it does first. What does it sure. do? Uh, dignity lifts makes electric toilet lifts, so it's a, an assistive device that yeah. helps people go to the bathroom independently. Now, most people are like, well, I already go to the bathroom independently. But as you age or if you get some sort of debilitating uh, condition, you may be in danger of losing that ability to go to the bathroom on your own. And typically, it's because you can't stand up after you go. And uh, uh, toilet lifts, you push a button and they stand you back up on your feet. So it's a simple, simple device. Yeah. Yeah. If you sometimes people are more familiar with uh, something called a lift chair, which is like a recliner chair, and you push a button and it stands you up, you know. Yeah. Oh. And our product, we I tell people if a, recli- a lift chair and a toilet seat had a baby, it would be a dignity lift. It's comical. I see your wife in the ads. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're not supposed to tell everybody <laughs> that. She gets she gets angry. My wife, my wife posed for a picture. We dressed her up like an old lady. Yeah. We we bought her reading glasses at the dollar store and some pajamas, and we put her on the toilet lift for like a picture. Yeah. And then, did you ever see the animated GIF? No, I haven't no, seen the that's, GIF. That's even worse. There's an animated GIF of her going <laughs> standing up. It's awful. This thing lifted her up. So, um. 
but it is a, I mean, it's an unserved niche, right? Yes, and that's just been yeah. a couple of years. How's it been going? It's going really well. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm very seriously considering getting rid of all the other parts of the business and just doing that. I'm trying to find retirement here, Larry, you know. Well, yeah. I mean, that's kind of a fantasy. It, like, what else are you going to do, No, I don't do, think so. I think it's possible, yeah. Maybe it's possible, a, but I I mean, you like doing this stuff. You like building these companies. You're very curious. I mean, the, the, a product <laughs> like this, when the population is aging faster than ever before, mm -hmm. so your total addressable market is huge and growing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you probably thought about that. I know you did. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's why I started the company. That's and, why it will make a great business for someone else to buy for me. That's what the Bulletproof Fest business. So Larry mentioned it. I was in the Bulletproof Fest business. I started a company called Bullet Safe. It still exists, bulletsafe.com, if you want a great Bulletproof Fest for a great price. And um, I grew that business and then I sold it. And that was great. Selling a business, is, Larry, is unbelievable. Well, how do you, I mean, yeah, I would think it'd be terrifying too, though, because you, yeah. you, you want to get every bit you could for it. No. And, no, the standard valuations are whatever, two times revenue, three times revenue, whatever it is. I was happy. It was once it got to a certain number, I was like, dang, that's a lot of money. You know, I'm not. <laughs> I I, I can buy people, an Isdera now. Yeah, right. I know there are people out there that want. I don't get what I don't get is I don't get the two or the guys who are worth two hundred million dollars that want to get to two fifty or the guys that are worth a billion dollars yeah, and want to get more. Yeah. I don't understand it. I just I'm not. That's not. I I was like that is more money, like even a hundred million dollars is more money than I would ever possibly spend, yeah. and, or my kids could ever spend. Yeah. So, once once the business was worth a lot of money, uh, and someone wanted to buy it, I was like, well, the bird in the hand is worth a lot more than you know. I mean, you're speaking my language, Tom, because you know me. I am a you only live once person. Yeah. And I always live. say you're going to go. So uh -huh. it's some balance. But you're speaking about being content and uh, have gratitude for what you have. Right. And to and have that, but also the drive to build a business is kind of unique in your yeah. personality. Think, That's so. true. But I mean, I think people think when you're an entrepreneur, like, You've grown a business. You've formed a couple of businesses. My mm -hmm. like, all I do is come up with the idea, and then I just say, "Oh, I'm going to watch it grow now." When yeah, in reality, right. like every day, I'm answering phone calls and emails, and I mean, I, I, you know, I still have to I still have someone breathing down my neck, whether it's a, 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 a ten thousand customers, a hundred thousand customers. So I just kind of would like to get out of that. Well, yeah, but you had to get it built. You had to get the product yeah, built. This right. lift has got electric motors. It's got yep, plastic. It's got braces. Yeah. It's got to mm -hmm. be stout. It has to be at a certain price point so people can afford it. Mm -hmm. At some point, you're probably hoping that insurance companies, Medicare, Medicaid, whatever, would put it in their allowable expense category, right? Um, well, we don't need that to happen. So you don't? It, the, okay. the business wasn't planned around that. Okay, I, actually, but, I actually thought if that happened... Um, I would get giant competitors come in and and try to enter mm. the market. And yeah. I don't, you don't want to compete with the big boys. I get it. So, you know, that leads me to my next question. You, know, you start these, these smaller companies, they've all been sort of small mm -hmm. and you, you know, you're still a, a very interested in car companies. You still love cars. You mm -hmm. named your company after a car. Yeah. Um, 
and you've kept pretty small and nimble. And I imagine that was on purpose. Like, what did you see? What were the downsides of a big conglomerate like a car company and the advantages and disadvantages of that? Like, tell me. I think the biggest disadvantage for me is that nobody would hire me to run one. <laughs> I don't think that I am the guy. Like, I, listen, I would love if someone called me up and said, Tom, you know how to start a company. I have, you know, I've, I got a seed round of $50 million and I want to run, start up, you know, a new venture. Yeah. I would jump at the chance, but I'm stuck here. Like I have the golden handcuffs of owning the place. Yeah. But, what what yeah. advice does somebody out there that, you know, I have friends that I'm, I, I've connected you mm-hmm. to them that want to start a business and, you know, as an insider that's done it, what are some of the, maybe there are three things you tell people. I'm sure everybody asks you, like, what do I need to know to do yeah. this? Like, what is it? Yeah, I have a standing invitation. Even people that are watching this, if you're in the Southeast Michigan area and uh, you have a business idea and you want to run it by someone who would tell you like the dirty truth about it. Yeah. If you take me to, if you schedule me and take me to lunch, I'll give you the, that time and we can <laughs> chat about your idea. And I do this about six times a year, I'd say on average. Oh yeah, nice. And people come to me with all sorts of ideas. And mm-hmm. uh, the I, so the so that you know that's probably close to a hundred people at this point I've sure. met with. I would say the number one flaw in people's business ideas mm-hmm. is that it is it will make them significantly less money than they would make if they just did what they're good at. Like, I can't tell you how many times someone who's like a CPA has come to me with an idea and it just works out like you realize, you know, when it's all said and done, you'll be lucky to make 5% return on sales, you know, you. So, and you've got this business that's going to sell a million dollars, a million and a half dollars a year and stuff. So you're going to make 75 grand a year if if you run it right. Yeah. If everything goes right. yeah. Yeah. Or, or you could get up at eight in the morning, drive to work every day and make $150,000 a year and leave at 5 PM and just do what you're trained in, you know? So I think that that is the the issue. I think people think being an entrepreneur is, um, is, um, somewhat fun enough to make it make sense, but it's not that fun. Well, the attraction what, is you be your own boss. There's nobody to answer to. There's no office there's politics. There's always someone to answer to. There always, always is. Everybody's got a boss. Always answering to somebody. You always have customers. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's the biggest one. Why didn't you ever start an automotive company? I mean, that's clearly where your interest yeah. lies. You know that market and the specialty equipment marketing association, the SEMA show in Vegas is huge. Uh-huh. Yeah. I always thought yeah. I'd see you there one day. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and uh, there's been no shortage of business plans because I still write business plans. That's okay. I just did another TED talk. I don't know if you saw it, but it's about uh, just how to figure out what idea to do next, uh, what idea sure. to do next. You know, yeah. how to find that one great idea. And I think the answer to why I never started an automotive company is because there's a lot of smart people out there starting automotive companies, and I don't want to compete with that. I want. I want the highest possible chance of success that I can, that, that I, you know, you just want to go where you think you can be successful. And I think there's just other industries that maybe are just easier. And this, so there's a, yeah, you're looking for a market that is untapped or lightly tapped. 
Yeah. Right. Or underserved. Yeah, it is always right. amazing. You go to SEMA and there's like, there's hundreds of wheel manufacturers. And you it's think, not, yeah. how do you expect to break through? Mm-hmm. I mean, how? I mean, it's like a commodity. How do you get a significant point of difference in that space, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then how do you get a, def- even if you have a significant point of difference to start with, how do you get a defensible position, right? Like everybody out there. I had uh, recently, before I started the Dignity West business, I had a, the number two choice was a company that was going to make wetsuits for uh, baby boomers. Because I, I hear where this is going. Tell me yeah. what is unique about a wetsuit for baby boomer. If you've ever worn a wetsuit, you know they're hard to get into and out of, <laughs> yes. right? But all these baby boomers have bought stand-up paddle boards and kayaks and all this other stuff, right? They yeah. just swim triathlons. But um, there's no way their shoulders are getting in and out of a wetsuit, right? They're just like, every time I do it, I'm, I'm not even a boomer, and I almost dislocate my shoulder. I so, see. It's not about the extra we- body weight. It's about flexibility. Flexibility and just right, access. Because okay. the wetsuit companies don't want to put long zippers on the wetsuits because it destroys their performance. The oh, water gets in and fresh water makes it not so warm anymore. Sure. But I figured the boomers don't care as long as they get let some, you know, like some people won't care about the performance of the wetsuit as long as they get one on at all. So uh, yeah. we had this plan for making wetsuits that had big long zippers, like your kind of insulated coveralls type of thing like coveralls and you could get in and out of them in a cinch and i was like you know everybody i showed it to people and they're like that's a great idea and we looked at pricing and you know wetsuits are kind of commodity item there's 99 dollars wetsuits and then there's brand name wetsuits like body glove which are largely the same product but they get like 300 bucks and we thought we should we can get 300 bucks for this thing so um so then i i just envisioned how the business would go would bring it to the first trade show, would show it to people. And then the second trade show we would go to body glove and O'Neill would have the exact same product. Like, yeah, there was no, there's no no defensible position. Yeah. Yeah, You'd enter with this unique product and then everyone else would immediately turn their products into that unique product. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm in the toilet lift business now. (laughs) Well, it totally makes sense. You know, so, it's now 20 years since you worked at the a car company. Uh-huh. What do you, what do you, what are you noticing today as we're transitioning to some future? We don't know how fast, you know, yeah. it's sort of told it's, it's going to be electrically powered. Uh-huh. Uh, autonomy is some people I, believe more so than others. I think. Right. Uh, electrically powered. I think um, the, uh, the, you know, recently Cruz had all that trouble was banned from using, cars without safety drivers in them in California because of an accident. Right. The CEO and founder resigned. Right. And I don't know. And they were publishing numbers. You know, California has that thing. So it's going to become obvious. I follow the industry very closely. It's my hobby. That's what I'm um, asking. California had that reporting that they're supposed to do on the autonomous vehicles where they're supposed to say how many interruptions or interventions, I think they call it, per mile. And Cruz was saying like, once every 15,000 miles, an operator was intervening. And then it just recently came out that, no, it was actually all the time, you know? So I wonder if there isn't a, usually a CEO resignation sort of, to me, says, eh, someone's put, cooking the books a little bit there. You know, usually a CEO doesn't resign. Maybe. Yeah. Well, I think there's we'll some mistruth. I think, um, just coincidentally, I was looking at, you know, my wife's from Flint and mm-hmm. um, her family has deep ties in Flint. Flint, Michigan, which, is where, which was the home of Buick. It's really where General Motors started. Mm-hmm. 
and um, my mother-in-law sent me some stuff about it. It's amazing what happened in a decade there. In 1900, it's the the capital of horse-drawn carriages. They're making Uh about 150,000 of them a year. Uh And by 1910, the entire industry had flipped over to cars and they're making hundreds of thousands of cars. General Uh Motors is putting up a house every seven minutes in Flint in a decade. This all Uh happened in a decade. Yeah. And you think about that and we think we move fast. And I, I, my, where I'm going with this is when Cruz is now having these hiccups and General Motors is really in a rush to show that this is a real business because mm-hmm. it's, it's seven years ago, seven years ago now, mm-hmm. they paid a billion dollars for that business. Right. And they're and, pouring in billions every year. Right. So and, at some yeah. point you got to wonder could could this thing ever be a business depending on based on the investments that have already occurred right, right. i know you look at these filings really closely how deep really is closely. the hole right yeah how it's deep like, is the hole yeah how deep is the hole and it seems like and other people will tell you oh our hole isn't so deep right cuz they want investor dollars they want the stock sure. price high you need the stock price high so you can sell shares when you need cash sure Cash is king, right? Cash pays the bills. Cash pays the employees. Mm -hmm. So you got to get the stock price high. So in order to get the stock price high, you have to look promising because people invest in the future. So like the whole Tesla thing is predicated on in the, well, they only make this many cars now, but in the future, they're going to make so many more, Larry. And in the future, their self-driving is going to work. And in the future, they're going to do this. And that's what people b- believe this thing, you know, so they pour the money into it. And the cruise thing was exactly that. Like, we can't tell the state of California that we're interrupting rides all the time. Like, we just can't do it. You know, we can't tell them that we've got a human piloting it most of the time, you know, it's well, just, it, or whatever it, it, was going on. there. We don't know. We'll find out. I, I tell you, that is another thing that there's probably no answer to this, but it'd be interesting to hear you talk about it. Like, I'm fascinated with this ultra thin line between a visionary and a grifter. Oh, right? so am I. So um, am I. Oh, it's ridiculous. Like the, the we work was, I think we oh. know. Can we say yeah. grifter here? I mean, the, the underlying business was never going to make enough money margin wise. Right. To, to justify all that exuberance. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And then you get uh, Sam Bankman free. That was just 100% grift, right? Right. And I mean, then on the flip side, you you know, a lot of people call Musk a grifter, but I always go back to the, he landed a rocket vertically on a floating platform. I oh, mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. I mean, yeah, there's, there's some there's, of it. Like, that's yeah. the beauty of that. That's why Elon Musk is so fascinating. Yeah. Because some things he gets right and some things get so wrong, <laughs> totally. you know? So, and it's like, is he a genius? Absolutely. The guy's got to be a genius, you know? Yeah. But is he a kook? Yeah, he's a kook too, you know? <laughs> And there, and history is full of these guys, you know. Yeah. Like Edison, we had, you know, Howard Hughes, you know, Nikola Tesla. You just have all of these crazy Henry Ford. So was uh, William Durant, the founder of General right, Motors. William Durant, right? Absolutely. Remember when GM was like showing off like nuclear powered cars and Cold remember dust. GM owned like didn't they own like um, Whirlpool appliance and. All this other stuff. They did, the, yeah. Maytag. They bought EDS. They bought off a Ross Perot software right, company. Right. They were trying to diversify. Uh, yeah, I used, guess it... Yeah, they oh, used to ahead. own... When I was at Ford, they were buying up other car companies. That was Alex Trotman's idea. That, that was, was when they bought Jaguar. the stupidest idea ever. Why? Because, because car companies... Well, 
Oh, uh, in the business planning office, I learned something that most people don't know. Car companies make money by the billions, right? So like last quarter, you know, Ford might Yeah, the swings like are, are huge. $3 billion. Do you know what you can do with $3 billion? Like, where I'm do you sure. think the money goes? They don't put it. You can't put it in a bank account, Larry. There's whole teams of people at a company like Ford whose job it is, is to figure out where the hell to buy $3 billion worth of something that they can sell eventually. So, like, but, you know, building a brand is so expensive. We've just uh, oh. established in the beginning of the show that a luxury brand has all this pricing power that is mm -hmm. hugely valuable. Right. So here's, Ford's here's, got Lincoln Mercury, which I, I hope there's not many fans out there. In the nineties, yeah. when this was going on, was not a polished, no. uh, the it Germans and the Europeans. Yeah. So here's, why here's, you could buy Jaguar cheap. Why wouldn't you? This is why, because you buy Jaguar cause you have a billion dollars and you can't find any place to put it. Sure. Right. So you buy Jaguar. When are you going to need a billion dollars? Like you're saving this money for a rainy day. Well, yeah, the, the inevitable downturn, which you the, need the a cycles. billion dollars yeah. in a downturn. What's not worth a billion dollars in the downturn? <laughs> Jaguar's not worth a billion dollars in the downturn. So it's yeah. this thing like if you vertically and everyone's like, oh, we're going to vertically integrate. We're going to keep everything in what we know. But mm -hmm. you need the cash. The cash business needs you need to pull the cash out, you know, so that's tricky. Yeah, I, I the strategy made sense to me. Because you could buy all brand, these luxury brands product. that were, yeah. what? The brand and product makes sense. Well, you bought Aston Martin. Mm -hmm. You bought yeah. Jaguar. What else yeah. did they buy? Volvo. They bought Land Rover. They bought Land Rover. And the idea yeah. being, okay, you could underpin all these brands with Ford Mechanicals. Right. Get get cost savings there, but they still, yeah. now you had a whole other dealer network. You brought people in the Ford fold who... Because, you know, the domestic car companies were caught napping in the 70s and 80s by the foreign car companies, mm -hmm. you brought them back into the Ford family who would never mm -hmm. go there. So yep. I think what was underestimated was the amount of investment that those companies needed to be brought into modern standards, perhaps. Right. Yeah. Would you buy yeah. that? I would buy that. I also think that there, it wasn't a bad decision at the time. And... The product was here and there. Like it didn't end up being wonderful when it was all done, and it didn't end up being terrible. Like no one says, like don't you know, Jaguars of that era aren't any more or less reliable than any others. But I think the problem was that when they needed money, and they had to sell those companies, they just there was nobody out there to buy them. You know? Oh, they were not liquid. Yeah, there's no liquidity. And that's sure. the they try they took a liquidity issue that they had. They had to remove the, the weirdest part of the whole business is like they have all this cash and they can't like well, it's it, not it's there's nowhere to put it. No one will take it. You have to buy something with it. That's why I think today they announced they're buying back stock. Yeah, they, they can do it as a dividend or buy stock back, right? But it, yeah. that's some that that's a feature of the car business, which is really fascinating. And I think it's hard for other people to understand just how hard the car business is. The margins are low. Mm -hmm. And when the times are good, they're insanely good. They are. And but then they're insanely bad sometimes. Exactly. And if you don't predict they're going to be good in the distant future, then you don't invest the money. Like the Ford knows like they just also announced that this battery plant they were talking about building yeah. is going to be smaller. 
Yeah. So here they are making billions, but and they first they were like, well, we could spend it on the future of transportation. Now sure. they're like, eh, maybe we, <laughs> maybe we're all not going to be driving electric cars. Like Mary Barra, like put a line in the sand and said, GM's only going to make electric cars at this point. I'm not sure that's. I mean, it was risky, and at Wall Street sort of maybe wanted to hear it. But man, I like the Toyota approach here. You know, hundred like, percent. I've been writing gonna, about that. Yeah. We're going to like, we're going to boil these frogs in the pot, you know? Yeah. I mean, this is a bigger issue, Tom, but you know, this as well as I do. And everybody in the car business knows this either. And it's a very libertarian viewpoint, but when the government or the regulators, they have a goal Mm -hmm. and the goal is to reduce the amount of CO2 that we put in the air. I'm not even arguing if that's worthy or not, but that's the goal. And instead of just figuring out an incentive so that they let these smart people figure out how to do that on their own, they're saying you're going to do this by making more electric cars that nobody wants to buy. And this has been going on for decades. With oh, yeah. Cafe yeah. And when I was, stuff. yeah. When I was, but here's the other thing is the customer. If you follow the customer and follow the dollar, you're, we would be in a world of hurt. Like the customer, wants, the customer wants the biggest possible engine. They want the biggest oh, yeah. truck. They want sure. all that shit. I have nothing. I have. I never in my whole career had any beef with the EPA and their standards. I never had a beef with Cafe. I. I. My job was to try to figure out how we were going to meet those standards. That's the job, and that's fine with me. But I would have no trouble if they said we're going to tax. Uh, some of the stuff is ridiculous, like giving people with a eighty-five hundred pound GVW vehicle uh, uh, the ability to amortize, like uh, depreciate it all in one year. So every yeah. business owner is out there buying giant trucks. Yeah, that's ridiculous. That hurts us all. It's a it hurts the tax revenue of the United States. It hurts the environment. Yeah. It's it's a terrible rule, but it still goes on. Like you can't get rid of it. So, but, you know, I never had any trouble with that. But you just you know you just do your job to make it work with all of that stuff. It's just a challenge. Yeah, but what Toyota's saying, I think the American car companies are responding to. Hey, the government's very clearly signaling that that in the future we're going to be forced to make EVs. Now, you know, in California, you won't be able to buy a diesel powered uh, big rig after the end of the year. Mm-hmm, yeah. All the new ones have to be electric, uh-huh. whether or not they're ready or not, to buy in California. So on the flip side, you have Toyota, much more global company. Right. They're saying. Mm-hmm. We want to reduce CO2 emissions. The best way to do this is with a hybrid. You take right. all this expensive battery material, plug-in hybrid, you distribute it against hundreds of thousands of cars. The batteries mm-hmm. are, what, three kilowatt hours? Get right. you 40 miles of range. And then Get you got the engine, no range anxiety. I don't know. Anybody could argue with that. but We can build 24 of these for, isn't it right, 24 of them? 24 for, for every battery car. Yeah. For every battery car. It's right. brilliant. But I, it's, I love it. it. But it's you, brilliant, but, but it's like, it's so obvious. It's just we're, we're not in a realm of, of aligning our goals and our process. And that's because when I, when I talk to people um, off the record, they say the same thing. Hey, we just want a carbon tax. Yeah. If that's really what we're after. Tax it. Make, and, the, make, but the, make the person pay. Make it's the just customer a, buy it. And then you, cause then they would, the demand for fuel efficient cars would go up. Right. I don't know how true this is. That is a political disaster because disaster. so many people live outside of, the urban areas, especially here in Ann Arbor, if mm-hmm. you look at the shift change for the nurses at the U of M hospital, it's huge. Mm-hmm. And none of them live in the city. No. They live 20 miles out. Right. So I remember when I was in the industry, 
they had this thing about carbon canisters collecting um, the fuel vapors when you filled your tank. Yeah, we all right? have that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but here's the thing that they could decide whether to put those carbon canisters on the fuel pump or whether they had to put a carbon canister on every new vehicle made. And the auto. Oh, you mean on, on the on the pump at the station? Yeah, you have. A, I I don't right. know if you remember. Remember those pumps that used to have the big like uh, snorkel on them? Yes, that was to capture vapor. And the fuel industry beat. There's a lobbying deal. Yeah, yeah. It made financial sense. Like, do you? There's way fewer gas pumps in America than there are cars. You could yeah. outfit every pump in America and uh, capture 100% of the vapors from the first day. Or you could require new cars to put in all this equipment. And you would only capture 5% of the vapors the first year and so on and so on. And the so the right decision was clear, but it didn't get made. Well, that's the, the, EV, uh, the EV hope strategy, right? Right. If um, all of our vehicles could run on electricity... That allows us to capture the CO2 at its source if you're right. burning and it's so much fuels. more efficient. Yeah. Or, you know, if the renewables, however you want to classify that, sun, mm -hmm. wind, you know, uh, grow, mm -hmm. um, that makes it way more easy to take advantage of those renewables if all the cars mm -hmm. are electrically powered. Right, right. So, and then, you know, I don't, it's... I'm very confused, Tom, and I'm yeah. very conflicted. I don't you know, know where you're, you're sitting on all this. I mean, I, it, it's a tricky time. Well, here's the thing. There's, there's, and then there's also other things going on. Like, it's if you want, if PHEVs, plug-in hybrids, are the right answer for now. Oh, there's only a few companies that can make them because what do you, you, mean? you already have to make internal combustion engines to make a plug-in hybrid. Who so, doesn't make an internal combustion engine and is a car all, company? All of the the Teslas, the Rivians, the all of the cool car companies that are making the news that are making investors rich right now. The Lucids, the Rivians, the um, the uh, the Teslas. These are the Neos. These are all companies that have an interest in telling you that a BEV makes perfect sense. Yeah, but that's okay because they're small, and I don't. But, we're not saying it's Tesla one or the other. Tesla is not small, right? Tesla's used it to Tesla's valuation. Their market capitalization is more than almost all the other car companies combined. So they are telling a good story, and people love a story. Yes. So we are divorcing ourselves from reality. Oh, and, and, when when you couldn't listen to the president of Toyota, a company that has honestly hardly ever done anyone wrong right i mean they have for decades made incredibly high quality vehicles at a great price and now far people won't yeah, people people seem to think they're out of their minds when they tell you what what the strategy should be for evs so. yeah i i guess what i was going with um there's the market's so big even in this country alone it's 15 million cars right yeah so what i was going with the companies that don't make any internal combustion engines, yeah, I think there's enough demand for their electric products for sure. Uh -huh. Yeah, and then the companies that make both, they have this sort of built-in advantage because they can make these plug-in hybrids. So, right. if you're, um, 
I've used them. They're great. Nobody oh, drives are. more than 40 miles a day. So no. you have a battery that gets you that, yeah. you're good. I had a Camry hybrid, loved it. I would yeah. have definitely bought a plug-in version. I have a hybrid Maverick now. I love it. It's fantastic. Yeah. There's no so, no need to have a pure electric vehicle anymore. Yeah, it's a fascinating I mean, a pure, time. Pure internal combustion engine vehicle. So it, it would be a fun time to be sitting in your old desk at Ford oh, looking at the future because it's uh -huh. so uncertain, right? It really is, yeah. Hmm. And um, I remember, you know, I remember times at Ford where with uncertain futures where sometimes they did, uh, they just um, did nothing and made a lot of money by doing nothing. Like, I so, and I see it happening right now. So Ford has a few hybrid vehicles, like uh -huh. in every the Maverick sort of for one. Maverick, they got mm -hmm. uh, the Escape. Lincoln has a couple of PHEVs. They, I believe they have a plug-in escape hybrid. They have a F-150 hybrid. And honestly, I wonder, they, they make some okay internal combustion engines. Like they have the current technology, direct sure. injection, you know, blah, 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 blah. And uh, I wonder if the plan going forward might be to just keep what you're doing, keep doing mostly what you're doing. Like don't replace the escape with an uh, electric escape. Don't replace the Expedition. Maybe put a hybrid version on the road, a plug-in hybrid, but largely keep it the same. And when General Motors is out there replacing the Equinox with the Equinox EV and the Blazer with the Blazer EV, and no one's going to buy, the, there's the customers aren't going to line up to buy these things. And GM has got no plug-in hybrids right now. They've got hardly any hybrid vehicles. I think that GM might be left doing the wrong yeah. thing. Yeah. I mean, usually have pretty good intel on what's coming from these car companies. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I think there's, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by Edging that is what's, you alluded to that earlier, what they're telling Wall Street is we're going all electric. But, mm -hmm. you know, they just announced a, a year ago that they're investing another $2 billion in the next small block for their right? pickups. Yeah, for the trucks. Yeah. I so, think GM is very careful saying we're only going to make electric cars. Yeah, so funny. I think there's a little bit of showmanship going there, yeah. but at the same time, to your point, their two big bets are an autonomy uh -huh. and EV. Right. Which seems today riskier than it did three years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think GM has lost, they had the Volt and they killed it. Yeah. And that, I think, was the right configuration for today's car buyer. The plug-in right. hybrid, I think, is what I think a lot of us will have in the near future plug-in Yeah, hybrids. me too. But you, yeah. in order to do a plug-in hybrid, you have to have a good small engine, you know? And mm -hmm. if you're Stellantis, I don't think you have a good small engine. Yeah, sure they do. Somewhere in the European lineup, they've got small engines all over the place. Oh, yeah, but not in the States, yeah. No, but they can fix that. I mean, I Yeah, I hope so. The, so, but, um, yeah. yeah, I know you like to read the financial documents of these companies. Love uh, anything <laughs> you're noticing that... Uh, has has like tell us a little bit about you have this like side hobby <laughs> where you read all the SEC filings for these public right. companies, right? What is yep. that? What do you do? So when I was in the business planning office, I read there's these things called SEC filings, and um, the SEC is Security and Exchange Commission, and mm -hmm. <clears throat> pardon me, companies are required to tell the truth to disclose their financials every quarter and then mm -hmm. every year. Uh, they're called quarterly filings. And if you're publicly traded, if your stock's available on the market, 
you have to, aside from all the bluster in the press releases, lay down the numbers. You know, how much are you spending in R&D? How much are you investing in new equipment and, and that type of thing? Yep. How much money you're making? How much money you're selling? And mm-hmm. all sorts of things. And what you predict, you know, sort of some future predictions. And <clears throat> it's really fascinating. There's fascinating stuff in these companies. Like a lot of people wouldn't realize, but I think GM is out, GM and Ford outspend Tesla on, on R&D. Like it's not even close. Like Tesla is not a heavy R&D company. Well, that doesn't surprise me because they make so many more cars and so many different types of cars. You know, Tesla mm-hmm. basically has one platform. I know. That's the thing. Like, why don't they want to, they think they want to grow 40% a year, but with what? You know, you can only sell so many Model 3, Model Ys. Cybertruck. Yeah, that's kind of, it's a one market <laughs> vehicle. Like, yeah, it's Even be if the Cybertruck is successful, you're not going to yeah. be able to port it to Europe or to Asia. Sure. What's, you know, you need... And, you know, they're saying, oh, we're going to make this $25,000 Tesla. Where's the R&D? Like, the reason the Cybertruck is four years late to market is because they didn't spend the R&D on it in 2018. Yeah, so, and they, re- they redid a bunch <clears throat> of stuff along the way. It sounds right. pretty fascinating from a tech right. standpoint, actually. Yeah, like where's the Roadster, right? They're not spending well, the R&D. They have the money. They're making money. They're just not spending any. Okay, so that's some of the things that you learn yeah, about. I mean, I'm impressed you can wade through those documents. It's They're not pretty that hard, hard when you get to... Um, one of the things I love to follow is um, the terrible companies. I love to follow the terrible companies. Give me an example, please. Um, Canoe. My what favorite, the worst one, is a company called Arkimoto. Arkimoto. They make like a three-wheeled... It's the ugliest freaking thing you've seen. So what it's is a, it? Tell us, Arkimoto is a car company? Uh, yeah, it's an EV company. Okay. It's a new EV <clears> company <throat> trying to be another Tesla. Is what, they're not what new. I'm... They've been around for like 12 years. Wow. Yeah. They're like, it's bonkers. Like they took 12, like the vehicles, I think, been on the road since like 2019. You can buy it's, one. Yeah, you can buy one. For, Here. For now. Yeah, they haven't gone out of business yet. How did I not they, hear about they, this thing? They're not Arkimoto. available in all Arkimoto. They're not available in all states. They're out of the car production capital of uh, Portland, Oregon. <laughs> they work wow. a four-day work week. Just to let you know, they're a startup company that's on the ropes, and they work four days a week. It's like, you boys are really trying, aren't you? <laughs> oh, <laughs> this thing. Oh, okay, okay. It's like a golf cart, essentially. But it goes 75 miles an hour, and they try to sell it as like a highway-capable full vehicle. has no, well... It's not enclosed, like it has some doors now, but it's a it's like a three wheel motorcycle. With okay, I I mean I could see there being a niche for a product like this. Yeah, okay, a lot so, of people I think could, and they raised okay. a bunch of money. At one yeah. point, the company was worth like six hundred million dollars. Yeah, it's like Aptera was very similar. Right, I like the okay. Aptera actually, yeah, but I, I don't do. think it's going to make it to market. Okay, so what did you find out? What are you, what are you, what did you're reading these filings? What are you learning? Yeah, so Arkimoto sells this three wheel motorcycle thingamajig. Um, called the FUV for fun utility vehicle, Larry. <laughs> you can hear the sarcasm in my uh, in my voice. Right. And they sell it for uh, the minimum price is nine nineteen thousand nine hundred ninety five. Whoa, yeah, that's that's a lot. And then with options like doors are an option. You're into the I think the average selling price is like twenty three thousand. <sighs> so in the SEC filings, 
they will tell you how many they built in a quarter. So say for Arkimoto, it might be like 70. Right. Then they will also tell you their cost of goods sold. So that is how much money they spent yeah. buying the stuff that they built. Yeah. So it could yeah. be the part, the cost of goods sold includes parts and includes the labor to assemble those parts, parts sure. material. It yeah. does not include the rent or the overhead or any of that sort of stuff. And Arkimoto sells an average vehicle for $23,000 and typically their cost of goods sold is 80,000. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so they're a, selling them yeah. for one fourth what they pay for them. I mean, that's a, that's a trend throughout the industry with these electrics, right? I mean, but that one is really outrageous. Especially the new one. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not new wait. anymore. They're already reached their peak sales. They're already on the downturn. Yeah. What you're saying is, is where is the path that that changes? It doesn't. It they're doesn't. just basically yeah. raised a bunch of money and they're going to spend it until they're bankrupt. Lordstown Motors was very similar. Okay. Remember yeah. that thing, the yep, pickup sure truck? Did. And there's yep. another company called Canoe, which makes like this, I don't know what it's called. I like it. It's like a little van. Have you seen that one? No. K, it's like, is it K-A-N-O? It's a C-A-N-O-O, Canoe. Trendy. Yeah, they're out of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma now. They were out of California. Then there's yeah, this uh, one kind of makes sense because you know the utility thing for businesses, right? Yeah. In fact, they have yeah. like Walmart has ordered like twenty five hundred of them. Sure. But they put no deposit down. They just promised to buy twenty five hundred. Yeah. Because they're both out of the same part of the country now. Yeah. But, so these this so is where the hype. What you're reading is where the hype stops in the reality. Right. That's what right? I love. Yeah. Exactly. Where's the yeah. hype start and. Where does it stop? And because they're required through accounting practices and SEC regulations to tell the God honest truth in this document, that's why it's fascinating because a company like Arkimoto can like say, oh, things are looking great. We're hoping to build more. We had a great quarter. And then they'll say something like, oh, we had a great quarter. We had more customer inquiries this quarter than ever, you know? <laughs> But it, but business. then you look at it, but you built half as many vehicles and you lost more money than ever. We had so, more likes on our Insta. Right. Our Insta. <laughs> yeah. Like Elon Musk right now with Twitter. He's like, oh, user yeah. engaged user minutes are in, at an all-time high. It's What's like, that? What, what the hell is that? You know, like, you're just making shit up at this point. So Yeah, okay. It. That's yeah. fun. So that, yeah. that's where you troll in. And uh, yeah, so... It's transitional time. The way I like to say, even in the Haggerty Drivers Club magazine, we have a, I started a section called Future Forward because uh -huh. I just wanted to make sure that we, we didn't look like old dogs with our heads in the sand. Right, and so right. I established a spot. I said, look, every issue, we are going to talk about something happening new. We're in the biggest transition in automobiles since it started mm -hmm. 120 years ago. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. by far. It's fascinating. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I so, really love it. I follow it. As an enthusiast, I can't see how you can't follow it. It's so totally. fascinating. It's really fascinating. And yeah. and all these characters that are showing up with really big plans and ideas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it is <laughs> yeah. a little disheartening when you look behind the curtain like you do with these filings. You kind of go, yeah. yeah, I don't see a path anywhere here. But yeah. yeah, good luck. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of fun. But before we, you know, sign off. You know, you, as you look to the future, you're always sort of finding these niches. Can you just tell the audience, like, what are the cars that are on your radar? Like, what are the enthusiast cars that have already been made? Yeah. And that you think 
future classic wise, I don't know if I care about that, but like we're not in this to make money. But what are some of the cars out there that you think are really pretty good buys right now? Uh huh. Well, uh, this is always going to be painful for me because Larry knows my wife gave me permission to buy a Lamborghini Countach when I when I and I found one for eighty five thousand dollars and I didn't buy it. Yeah, I did not buy it. So. Mistake. First of all, let's just clearly state that I'm a fool in this category because it was. Well, a, you just don't it, act on your ideas. That doesn't. It mean was you're a, a fool. pretty nice Countach too, black with gold wheels, and I kick myself repeatedly for not buying it. But uh, there yeah. are definitely a couple of a uh, few vehicles out there that I that I look at. I like Corvettes. I'm a Corvette guy, uh, but I have a C8, so I'm happy, and we have a C5 in the household, so we're. But I don't think a lot of Corvettes are really good, like collector buys. You know, yeah, but what, what do you think many. nobody's recognizing now is a really cool car so you can get it pretty cheap? Oh, um, I like the Toyota Celica Alltrack. Remember those? Yes. If you can find one, they're like, yeah. they're gone. But yeah, right. That was a, That's, they're not expensive. No, but that was a four wheel drive version that they had to make because they were running them in the world rally championship. Yeah. Right. So it's a turbocharged yeah. four cylinder stick shift. Couple this would have been early 2000s ish. Uh, I would say more like 95. Okay. Downside, yeah. right? They're slow. 120 horsepower and they got a lot of mechanical Two, friction. Yeah, they make 200. The Alltrack 200. makes 200. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're slow, but they're in it, but they're Toyotas, you know, so. Right. Um, I like the MR2, supercharged MR2. That's the first, first gen. gen. Yeah, those yeah. are rarer than Hens T2. We had that in the uh, bull market list a few years ago. Yeah. As yeah. a car to if buy, for one. sure. Yeah, I, yeah, just ridiculous. By the um, way, can we go back to that Celica for a second? Because yeah. that Celica is responsible for the most ingenious cheating scandal, I think, in, oh, a, in all yes. of motorsports history. Uh-huh. And if I could take a minute to explain what they did, was they had this app. Uh, back then, the World Rally Championship instituted something called the restrictor plate. And basically, it made all the car engines have this, I think it was a, I want to say 300 millimeter hole that restricted the amount of air that could go in the engine. So this was sort of an idea to level out a straw. It's like breathing an engine sucking through a straw. Level the playing field, reduce costs, stuff like that. The Toyota, I knew a guy I met who was a mechanic on that team. And the engineers at whatever race shop that they had hired to build, Toyota hired to build, developed this thing sort of like a Nautilus shell. And when you bolted it on the car and you actually tightened it down with a clamp, it opened the aperture so that when the inspectors took it out to inspect the hole, it closed it down. That's how genius this thing was. And he said, this is my favorite part, Tom. I said, did you guys know what it was? He's like, no, we knew something was up. And I was like, well, how did you know? He's like, well, before every event, some dude would show up with a, we didn't know, with a briefcase. We all had to leave the garage and he would bolt it on the car. (laughs) 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 And then out it would go. And he said nobody knew anything until there was a like a section where they were racing the other cars in a dirt stadium, and the Toyota was like from a rest was in a drag race, you know, ten car so, lengths ahead of the other, uh-huh. <laughs> and that's what finally induced the inspection. That's when I finally got caught, and that was the all track turbo era, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I that thing that. was it was a dominant rally car. Dominant. Well, yeah, it was cheating, but yeah, okay, cheating, that, that, yeah. That, that's a cool little sidebar, yeah. but. I love that story with cars like that. It just it's makes great. it more fun. So you said so the MR2, anything else that's, that's yeah, on your radar? Oh, I got a whole list of them. Okay. You know, I, I like FDRX7s because they're beautiful. <sighs> you yes. Know? 
because th- these cars, too. like, as we age, we're going to, the cars that really become classics aren't the fastest cars. You know, they are the cars that you fell in love with, the cars that were on the poster. Because, listen, cars get faster and faster every year. Yeah. You're going to, people are going to like banded Trans Ams, even though they weren't fast. They just, they, you know, we just, you fall Nostalgia. in love. It's yeah, they emotion. like the twin turbo Supras because they're in the movies, right? Yeah, yeah. And they weren't fast, 300 ponies. Totally. They weren't good on the track, right? You've probably yep. track driven or driven one. They just fall in love. But I, I think the FD RX-7 is a is a the beauty in my eyes. Super uh, great chassis too. Great gearbox. There's yeah. one on the Haggerty Marketplace auction. I know. Fifty five thousand miles. Don't tell everybody, Larry. I'm, I should tell everybody, <laughs> but uh, right now you just told everybody. <laughs> I just now did. It's gonna, now I'm not going to get it. <laughs> eh, this will yeah. be after. It's yeah, over. I like those cars. Those are really like neat. And then there's yeah. some rare ones. They have like an R1 package. Like it sure. was like with the spoilers and stuff. So that will, I think those will drive up. My car I like that you don't like is the Vector. Yeah, I drove one. I mean, they just made so few of them. Yeah, and which makes the value go way. Yeah, the way. value, I think that was, um, we just did a thing on Hangar the Insider about cars that are really on the rise and the Vector uh-huh. was one of them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, they're so different because, the, you know, there was the original ones that were a twin turbo small block Chevy. That's the And one. then it moved to a Lamborghini V12. That's not the one. Which one do you yeah. want? The original? V8. W8. V8. Yeah. I mean, the one I drove a few I think years ago. there's only ago, like 19 of them? Yeah, it, it was built. I was super impressed that the standard is it was built. If you go on the Haggerty website, we did a whole big package on the Vector and its founder, Jerry Weiger. Mm-hmm. It's a crazy story. Crazy I mean, story. it was a far better built car than I expected. So they really did honor that mission as this special handcrafted thing. I don't know. It's just not usable. I mean, I'm just a yeah. usable car guy. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. it's uh, I like it because it's rare. It's desirable. Yeah. You know, and uh, it's American. It's just, yeah, you know, I think cool. that could be like a, if you're looking for an investment grade vehicle, I think those could be $10 million cars. I know you're going to disagree with me, but I tried to buy one last year. They don't come up for sale. There's only like 19 of them. Right. And there's like a Facebook group, Vector. And one of the guys said, if anyone's interested in buying a Vector, I have a line on one. So I wrote to him and he was like, before you, uh, you let me know, you have to let me know like what your price limit would be. Oh. I, and I said, I said uh, $500,000. That's like, oh. <sighs> Now, can I get my wife to approve $500,000? No, probably not. That's a big but purchase. I told him that. And then he told me that that was in the ballpark and he'd find out. And he went to the owner and I guess the guy decided not to sell. Yeah, you know, there's a, I was just talking to Ramsey Potts over at Haggerty Marketplace. You know him. We just did a yeah. drive. Yeah. You tell him you're looking for one. I bet he knows where one is. I bet. I might, I might do that, actually. You should do that. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Tom. It's been yeah, super fun so, to talk to you. Did we leave anything on the table that we should have talked about? I got one. I got uh, another thing. I'm going to break your heart with this one, Larry. Okay. Manual transmission, mid-engine cars. That's the future. The high-dollar cars. Oh. Manual trans, mid-engine. And I don't care if it's an MR2 supercharged, uh, MR2 turbo. Certainly, you had one that you sold that your 430 with the oh the Ferrari, Four, Ferrari 430 was. I don't regret speed. selling it at all. No, you didn't like no. it. I, I wanted like it. you to sell it to me, but I didn't like it. Forgot. Yeah, Wasn't but I for think 
Gallardos, Murcielagos, but I don't think Audi R8s. I, yeah, that's a weird one. Okay, th- there's all sorts of nuances in that. I I would agree with you. I just I think having on that 430 stick, I think I had like 500 horsepower. Mm-hmm. You never really got to rev it out because it's so fast on the road, yeah. and it wasn't really a track car. And then you've got the whole Ferrari dealer. You bring it there for an oil change, and they stack on ten thousand dollars worth of what? So the ownership experience wasn't great. But then the other thing that really changed my mind about that car. Because there weren't many 430s made with a stick. No. Once you drive a 458 and it's only automatic, mm-hmm. yeah, and you go, wow, this car is so much better. That's why I went the all other way with a Ferrari mid-engine stick shift to that 75 308 I'm restoring. Yeah, yeah. Just because I thought, okay, I'm going to divorce this completely from moder- modernity. Yeah. And um, I think that's the move for me. But I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I like the I like the dual clutch transmission in my C8. Love it. Yeah. But you know these classic cars are you you don't own them for the driving to work. You own them for that nostalgic drive. You know for that there's like a certain machismo in owning it. You know. Yeah. Like, I can drive a stick. I drive this 500 horsepower stick shift car, and I think that's where the collector goes. Yeah, there's 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 so much status wrapped up in the um, yeah, car weird. community. There's two two statuses. I think you, it's it's in like okay, what do you covet? What do you like? How do you keep your cars? And then the second thing is, and, and by the way, I'm I'm terrible at both of these. The only reason I have any status is because I write about these things. Uh-huh. I don't keep them really nice, and I don't uh-huh. I don't shine them. So that's a status demerit. And then the other thing is, did you make money? Are you savvy buying and selling these things? And I'm uh, openly admitting I always lose. Oh, do you? Yeah. Totally. I, don't, I don't do enough of it. I'm not that great at it. Any, time, yeah. any car I make money on, it's worth 5000 and I sell for seven. You know. The, so yeah. I mean, it's, it's not, like I made money on one car. Right. The rest of it. The nostalgia thing, though, from my experience, Tom, because I bought a lot of nostalgia, it, it's not long-lasting. Right. That right. nostalgia hit is a... It's a month or two, maybe six months, mm-hmm. and then it's the merits of the car. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I believe you. There is, but the the and then the modern car thing is great. Like being able to afford a modern nice car now yeah. is a, is one of the great things about how my career has gone. The AC because works. because it's nice to <laughs> have a warranty. And to, totally. You know, like I remote started my car this morning and, you know, <laughs> they, it has a heated steering wheel and, yeah, yeah. you know, that, I'm not driving a classic car on a cold day. No, thanks. I know, but it's such a fun time because um, I, I keep trying to remind people that we've been in this golden age for 20 years, I think. Yeah, it's golden age. Tons and tons of horsepower in the dealerships mm-hmm. and the older cars are really usable and they're uh-huh. not. Are, they they work well on our roads, and so you have this incredible choice. Depreciation for the old cars is leveled off, so unless you're a real fool, the ownership costs aren't that high. I mean, right. there's a lot to like here, and and there's a lot of cars with this OBD two OBD yeah. two. That, you yeah. like you don't have to go to the dealer to figure out what's wrong with it. The car tells you, pretty you know. Nice. So it's pretty wonderful with that. So I think there's, you know, there's a lot of modern collector vehicles out there yeah. for us. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, Tom, it's been a great time talking to you. Thank yeah, you for I'd sharing like to everything with us. Yeah, I'd like to apologize for all the listeners and viewers uh, for being a complete nobody, but I hope I was somewhat entertaining. Oh, stop. <laughs> totally entertaining. Well, thanks, everybody. We look forward to welcoming you next time to Never Stop Driving.